How is it Thursday already? A good Thursday morning to you, Real Talkers. It is April 15th, and this is uh, episode... What would this be? We don't really talk about the show this way, but this is like 90... 93, 93, I believe. 93, the Nuge. I love it. A little reference for our Edmonton listeners and hockey fans from coast to coast that tune into the show. Hello, hockey fans. That's as close as I can get to old school excellence. Uh, Samuel G. Brooks uh, alongside me this morning, the show's technical Morning, producer. We've, we've realized for the first time today, as we take the Uncle Sam cam, uh, that you and I actually own. This is the first time I think that the paths have crossed. We're not wearing them together today, though I think that may have been cute. We've just realized we own the same shirt. <laughs> you walked in and I went, hey, good looking. I, I like this shirt. It's like it's it's, it's kind of abstract kind of looks like yeah. it's either like I, I, I see it it kind of looks like slices of blood orange or maybe uh blood cells you know what i mean it's just blood like, cells i like, like blood that cells, i was thinking I mean? it looks cool like uh, yeah. in the winter as a as a slow sleepy deep river mm. that you know crawls through uh you can typically see and I, there's a name for them you probably know what it is you know, oh, the ice floats on it. The, well, you know the yeah, they're like the really neat formations. Yeah, they're, they're called. Fr- we brought this up on the show for. They're called frazzle pans frazzle because pans, right. it is frazzle ice, and that's what my friend Vince studies. Yes, right. Yeah, we did have this conversation, boy. Oh, so now we know the the answer. Uh, when does the show start getting redundant and boring and start to repeat itself? It's episode ninety three. So there you have it. Um, it also would remind me, although not quite exact in shape, I hesitate to say it because I know that we have we have woke audience members, so to speak. But I just want to say the word because i haven't said it for years it might sort of resemble a a paramecium mm. such a great word to say I, I think I, I i started to feel smart and accomplished uh right around the grade where we started learning about amoeba and paramecium and then you sort of started think i sound like a doctor Maybe I should go on the internet and share my hot takes. I sound like a doctor. Good morning, everybody. In about 13 minutes, we're going to be checking in with the co-chairs of the Western Economic Solutions Task Force. Uh, As with any strong political lobby, the acronym is powerful, WEST. And that's the message of the Western Economic Solutions Task Force. And Randy Golden and Charlie Clark and Paul McLaughlin will join us. Uh, Randy, uh, she's a counselor in the city of Yorkton, and she's the co-author of a piece alongside Mayor Clark out of uh, uh, Saskatoon and Paul McLaughlin, who's the president of the Rural Municipalities Association um, here in Alberta. So the three of them uh, put this editorial together, and we thought it was a pretty good focus leading up to the federal budget it's the first federal budget we're going to see from this government in about two years that's coming up on monday and obviously we'll be talking about it so we're going to get a sense of of how the west wants in to this budget that's coming up in about uh you know now 12 minutes or so and in about an hour well about 75 minutes from now i'm very excited for this conversation a filmmaker uh the guy behind have you seen farm crime has anybody seen what jeff morrison's been doing it's streaming now on cbc gem season two of farm crime uh you can check out bigcedarfilms.com or you can check out the cbc gem uh streaming service the app whatever um we're, we're, that's very generous of us isn't it like that was that was just providing all of the avenues to their content um but but we're here because jeff's a great storyteller the focus he takes you know you're thinking farm crime you're gonna think everybody's trying to steal everybody's quads and cattle rustling and there's a little bit of that uh, but there's also like murder hornets and baby eels and like really strange stories out of canada's agricultural producers their world and i'm looking forward to that conversation with jeff plus your emails we're going to touch on stories of the day uh including what do you even call it um you know 
a politician in front of a live camera in his office in Ottawa that that caused quite a stir. And Will Amos, um, you know, had a bit of egg on his face. Don't show the photo yet, Sam. He 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 said obviously this was a huge mistake. And part of me, I'm I'm gonna I'm honestly I I'm gonna approach this like a bit of a teenage boy for a second. Although that's a weird context, but you know what I'm mean? I'm 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 coming at this with in slightly immature fashion because I've seen some people talk about. You know, things like consent and sharing nudes and all this. And I I think there's a difference here, although I'm not Will Amos. So ultimately, the message needs to be that however he would feel about this might be most important. I think it's different than sharing nudes. It's not like he sent these to his girlfriend and then they broke up and now his girlfriend's sending them, putting them up on the Internet. But at the same time, you know, so um, we have a hot take on that. I think it might not be the worst thing to ever happen to Will Amos, to be honest, but but. You know, uh, real talkers can let me know what you think. The hashtag real talk RJ and of course our live chat going and we'll keep an eye on our inbox talk at RyanJesperson.com. This show is presented by our title sponsor each and every weekday morning. It's Bitcoin. Well, and if you missed uh, founder and CEO Adam O'Brien on the show, I guess a few days ago now you can find it. Uh, well, anywhere you get your podcasts, just look for real talk. Ryan Jesperson or of course on our YouTube channel. Bitcoin. Well is all about financial sovereignty. And you heard Adam on the show. He, he said this isn't like sell your house and cash in all your assets and, and invest it all into crypto. He, he talks about the 1% idea. And if you want to learn more about that, you can find the team at Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Woke up beside our voiceover girl again this morning. What a way to start the day, let me tell you. Uh, of course, that's my lovely wife, Carrie. Always appreciate her voice work. You can check out what she does at CarrieSkelton.com. We're just sharing the love today on content. We, want to, we, want, we, we have a huge respect for content creators here on Real Talk. If you want to see what Carrie does, check out CarrieSkelton.com. So here's the story. Uh, Will Amos is a liberal MP. All right. And uh, yesterday, uh, House of Commons, uh, he appears during question period on camera. And uh, well, Here's what it looked like. If you're watching us live on YouTube right now or watching this later on YouTube, you'll be able to see it. If you're listening to the podcast, just, well, Google Will Amos or look on Twitter and you'll find it. Sam, here's what happened. It's a Zoom call. And as you can see, uh, the MP out of Quebec was caught in the buff. Now, what appears to be his cell phone was was actually quite tastefully and luckily placed uh, to cover his 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 sensitive nether regions, if you will. Uh, and of course, it, it caused quite a stir. Uh, Bloc Québécois whip uh, Claude de Béfoué, uh, late, pardon my French, in seriousness, by the way. Actually, f- please do pardon my French. Not an offensive phrase, a throwaway. Please do pardon my French. Uh, interrupted, uh, the BQ whip interrupted the House of Commons proceedings, asking the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rhoda, to intervene. <laughs> and here's how it went, Sam. This is in QP. This is, this is not like some community hall meeting in 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 northern manitoba this is a federal government mp out of quebec naked on camera during qp in the house of commons um the bloc quebecois whip uh to the speaker quote since the beginning of the pandemic you have repeated many times mr speaker the importance of respecting decorum and dress code and i think we have broken a record today because we saw an mp during question period in the simplest of attires in other words, naked. So if you could remind our colleagues, particularly the men, that a tie and jacket are obligatory, but also a shirt, underwear, and pants, we were able to see that the MP was in great physical form 
but I think it's important to remind him to control his camera. So what's most important in, in this is how does Will Amos respond? And so he tweeted this out shortly after Sam. Let's take a look at his tweet. This from the MP out of Quebec who said, I made a really unfortunate mistake today and obviously I'm embarrassed by it. My camera was accidentally left on as I changed into work clothes after going for a jog. I sincerely apologize to all my colleagues in the house. It was an honest mistake and it won't happen again. Well, yeah, (laughs) this is the guy we all know one person or one friend that has electrical tape or hockey tape over their webcam. And sometimes there's a story there. Sometimes there's a reason because they've been burned. And I think it's fair to say that Will Amos has been burned by this. However, and and I and again, I want to qualify this by saying this is a an admittedly immature take by uh, a talk host who's just having fun with the story. Because I do know that there are probably serious angles to be had and and many of you or at least some of you would probably want to have a more serious conversation about things like consent and sharing images and captured nudes. And I mean, we could have a really high level conversation about that. And conversations about consent are very important. But just as a throwaway comment, it's not the worst thing in the world to be a politician where image is very important and been caught on camera in a highly forgivable situation, a somewhat believable situation, changing into work clothes after going for a jog. I mean, I mean, okay. I mean, I can think of other things that may have been going on and, 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 you know, heaven forbid, and I'm not implying that they were, but there are, there are several reasons why one could be caught naked in the, in, in their member of parliament office on parliament Hill in Ottawa. I mean, where you feel the power, there could be several reasons why one may be naked and it's not up to me to speculate. And really it doesn't matter, but it's maybe not the worst thing in the world when you are lean and jacked and young and handsome and tall and cut to be accidentally and forgivably caught on camera. Now, Canadians were and remain very interested with this story. As you can see by this great tweet, you can see what happened. Somebody mapped out what Google searches looked like on Will Amos as the story unfolded. And as you can see, if you're watching us on YouTube and if you're on the podcast, just take my word for it. You would describe this as an exponential rise. If Dr. Michael E. Mann uh, out of Pennsylvania was, was still on the show talking about climate, he would describe this as the hockey stick graph. And I'm going to leave the metaphors there on what the Google search looks like, the history of Google searches uh, from Canadians looking to learn more about Will Amos. I thought this was pretty funny. A a great Twitter account that you should follow out of Calgary, Alberta, giant blue ring. If you know Calgary, you know, obviously it's a reference to a pretty prominent piece of public art viewable from the Deerfoot. But I love this from giant blue ring who posts a fabulous photo of, in my mind, you know, one of the great actors of our time, Bradley Pitt. The giant blue ring claims my video was accidentally turned on. As I was changing into my work clothes, drying my hair and putting baby oil on after going for a jog, I sincerely apologize to my colleagues on Twitter for this unintentional distraction. It was an honest mistake and I won't happen again. Good thing for giant blue ring. They resemble one of Hollywood's. I mean, what, what a multiple, if I remember correctly, one of People magazine's multiple winners of the world's sexiest man. So, I mean, yeah, Academy Award, sure, fine. Golden Globes, uh-huh. 
you know, SAG Awards. Okay. World's Sexiest Man, cover of People Magazine, Brad Pitt, Giant Blue Ring, pardon me. Imagine how mortified you might be to be caught on camera after, after baby oiling your, your eight pack and unintentionally exposing yourself to all those that follow you and would qualify as fans. Samuel G. Brooks, as, as I've been exploring this idea here live on Real Talk, I, I've looked over and you've been tying a bow tie uh, the entire time. Well, I shouldn't say the entire time. You actually tied it in quite efficient fashion. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, and I, and I don't think you were doing it for attention, but I'm trying to figure out why you would have why you have added a bow tie here and sort of classed it up a little bit. It's not. It was always my intent to wear one today. I got dressed this morning. It's like I feel it felt like a good bow tie day, and and I was just uh, you know getting over here and, and not quite ready for the show when we launched. I was working out some video in the background, so I just finally pulled it out of my bag and put it on. Okay, it was always my intent to wear one. It today. sort of it sort of felt to me like you were editorializing. You know, we we were talking about showing up to work in various states of undress, and I wondered if you were getting you had your you know your collar was open when you came in. The button was popped. And, and I wondered if you were starting to feel underdressed. I wondered because you started dressing it up as I was talking about a guy in the buff uh, in national view. I, I, I was I was reading too deeply into it, I suppose. Well, I mean, I I coincidence, maybe or maybe just sort of a subconscious thing that washed over me being like, oh, yeah, that that's uh, I'm going to I'm going to go in the other direction of this. I, I like to look at the professional at work. I also don't don't look that good under this so you know we'll just uh well we'll, we'll leave that on the table there yeah so. i mean let, let's let's be quite clear well while our guests are joining us over zoom you and i are not joining one another over zoom so yes. if you were to appear in front of your camera completely naked after going for a jog it may prompt some some valid questions about yeah. your approach to, to decorum in the, I in the workplace i think our the, hr department might get involved with that yeah yeah, yeah our robust hr department um uh, some random guy with a fair question of course real talkers because you have depth and you're serious um are asking questions like okay some random some random guy i'd love to know some random guy's real name sometime or maybe don't maybe don't share that's it the point though yeah but he, he, he and, and who knows if it's even a guy but some random guy kind of shares the perspective of the everyman if you will as a matter of fact i take that back don't ever tell us your name i love it and you're kind of like Wilson, uh, you know, behind the fence. It was Wilson, right? Yep. Tim, Tim Taylor's yep. neighbor in Home Improvement. You never really saw the face. You kind of see the face, but never really see it. Some random guy says, if we want to play double standards, what if this was a woman who had this photo circulating? I'll, hey, let's be honest. There's no way. If it was a woman who, who, whose nudity was, I mean, whose you know, privates were exposed. Privates. What am I, like 90? Um, well, if I said or genitalia, <laughs> it would be yeah, or nine. There's there's like a mix. We're having that yeah. conversation with our five year old right now. Like, what are the appropriate <laughs> things to call body parts? Because he's learning all the funny ones. Um, but there's also again, if we're gonna, get, you know what I feel like? I feel like we're I'm standing over the line. I have to go either fully immature for this one, or I have to go fully serious for this one. Because actually, you would get counselors and therapists and psychologists and teachers and educators and experienced parents that would say you should teach your kids to call their body parts what their body parts are called, and we would have a serious conversation about that the point being let's get back to some random guy's point if this was a woman and that was happening on zoom honestly we wouldn't share the photo i wouldn't share the photo i wouldn't feel comfortable sharing it is that a double standard i don't know i mean if it was a woman who had her uh you know her computer monitor was covering her you know her chest and and she had her phone in front of her as i said earlier her nether regions would we then share the photo I don't know. I guess we would make that judgment call in the time yeah maybe it's a double standard maybe it's different that it's a guy maybe it's different that i'm a guy now someone's going to say, well, Ryan, you being a guy has nothing to do with, oh, my, we're in a mind bender right now, aren't we? Anyway, Judy says, yeah, like any woman would undress in a business meeting. 
Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, that's the other thing, too. You need uh, you need a certain level of male confidence to even do that. Do you, you know? though? I mean, if it's if you think it's if you think you're in a private area, like I how mortified would you be if you think you're in a private area, which is the you know, he's probably got his blinds down, his doors closed, maybe even locked, but he doesn't realize his camera's live. Or maybe the maybe he was signed in and then thought his camera was off or something, or or maybe it's not an accident. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Kareen says, like, really? Like, who changes in front of a desk and an open window? Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Crazy James says he's a liberal MP for now. No. And Eric says, I'm pathetic. He's done with this bro podcast. All right, bro. Peace out, Eric. That's all right. People act like we've never had people stop listening or watching before. Been in the game 15 years, baby. We understand how it goes. It ebbs and it flows. Not going to love everything. Uh, with regards to Crazy James saying, well, he's a liberal, liberal MP for now, there's no way he loses his job over this. There's no way you lose an election over this. I guess that's kind of in a roundabout way, the point that I'm making while not really making any point at all, which is that you don't lose your job over something like that. You lose your job if you're Anthony Weiner and you're sharing nudes in unsolicited fashion and it's sexual harassment and that type of a thing, for sure. Probably Governor Cuomo in New York, that story is an absolute disaster. Remember when everybody was talking about how what a shame it was that that guy wasn't seeking the Democratic nomination? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that story broke right before the election and he was the Democratic nominee and they lost and it meant that Trump got a second term? Oh, wow. Are our rock stars ready to roll in our roundtable just uh, Just trying to get their audio checked okay, out right stuff. now to make sure that we're, we're good to go. We're but, going to uh, be talking about how the uh, West wants in. We're going to be talking about the federal budget that's coming out on Monday. And there's a, you know, a group of <clears throat> elected officials and, and you know, folks that have, have been, it's their job to pay pretty keen attention to where the economy's going, where it's lagging behind, and then to figure out by, by talking to constituents, people like you, people that are watching and listening to this show, what it is that, you know, the West, and in particular this region, we'll, we'll ask them how they characterize it, but for the most part, the prairies would characterize meaningful investment in the economic future or the post-pandemic economic recovery of these provinces. We're going to get into this in just a second, a real talk roundtable coming to you on this Thursday morning. Plus, we're going to get to your emails on interviews we did yesterday about tuition increases at the U of A's Faculty of Law. Uh, we've got a great email here from uh, a viewer by the name of Mike who wants to talk about, you know, uh, anti-vaxxers based on some pretty high profile conversations that have been going on over the last few days. And I know a bunch of you are going to say that video is not about anti-vax, not the point. Mike's email is we're going to read a great email about vaccines from Chelsea, who's concerned about firefighters that she knows. And I'm going to tell you a story of a, a serendipitous and wonderful chance meeting that I had on a sidewalk yesterday that relates to yesterday's show. And it might send chills up your spine in a good way. Wanted to remind you that we're so proud to be partnering with the team at Eden Landscaping. This is the time of year where the team at Eden is blowing the dust off their shovels. I'm just kidding. They never stop working. But they're ready to go on turning dreams into reality. That's one of the biggest reasons why I think so many people have been trusting Eden Landscaping over the last 20 years. It's because they're with you from the first consultation to the design 
to the build, to the implementation of the plan. You're not hiring a landscape architect, paying them, finding a general contractor, paying them. And then, of course, dealing with the inevitable headaches that'll come with everybody dealing with one another. At Eden Landscaping, they've got you covered. And no project is too ambitious. They love a challenge. You want proof? Check out landscapeedmonton.ca. That's where you can see their work. Also, a big shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. By now, you know they're Tesla certified solar installers. By now, you know that they've got certified electricians and electrical apprentices doing the installs. And you probably remember that they do all the paperwork for you, too, which is a big draw to people that don't have to do all the research on the the reimbursements and the incentives and and everything that's there to maybe bring down the cost of you going more green. Check out kubienergy.ca today. And don't forget, Positive Reflections presented by Kubi every Monday. Send us your feel-good stories to talk at ryanjesperson.com. So in the Post Media Papers, uh, just a couple of days ago, an op-ed runs. It's penned by the chairs of the Western Economic Solutions Task Force. That's put together by the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Uh, Randy Golden, Charlie Clark, and Paul McLaughlin came together on an opinion piece. Investment in Western communities needs to be key to the federal budget. And I'm grateful that those three have joined us this morning. Uh, Of course, you probably also know that Randy Andy Golden is a uh, counselor in the city of Yorkton. Uh, His worship, Charlie Clark, the mayor of Saskatoon, and Paul McLaughlin, the president of the Rural Municipalities of Alberta. A good morning to the three of you, and and thanks for being here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Happy to be part of this. And I appreciate, let me point out the obvious, I appreciate that that the three of you have have agreed to join us no matter what. And and it looks to me like, Mayor, we've caught you in transit, which is fantastic. So I'll I'll respect your hard out time. I know that you're, you're a man on the move. Where are you off to today? I, I just had to do a media hit for uh, our upcoming marathon uh, right on the riverbank here. And it only gave me a couple minutes to get onto this show. So I just decided to do it from uh, from my vehicle. Hope it, hope it works out in terms of the video. But it's the nature of our of our lives these days. With, well, uh, everything virtual. So I'll tell you, you're coming, you're coming through loud and clear. And actually, the lighting's pretty good, too. So so <laughs> you, you've got nothing to worry about. Uh, Randy, this is this is significant. This conversation. And, and I know I would say you're you know, you're wanting to kickstart it. Let's say you have kickstarted it. Um, th- this is kind of another interpretation of the West wants in, isn't it? Well, thank you very much for having us uh, this morning, uh, Ryan, and and great transition from your first conversations that I was overhearing. Um, I was concerned about if we might get drawn into that conversation. (laughs) I'll uh, leave that alone. uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the the conversations on um, the Western provinces started in November 2019. Uh, we've been working on this for uh, for a bit of time, and it's really culminated in some great responses for our uh, municipalities. We brought together Western leaders uh, from the four provinces, uh, mayors and uh, uh, of cities, and also the uh, presidents of our provincial uh, municipal associations. So some great leaders uh, with great uh, expertise and experience. Uh, And we really have uh, uh, focused in on four priorities, Ryan, that we have been working on. And that is, uh, number one, getting our resources and products to market. Number two has been energy development, uh, climate policy and regulations. 
The third one is supporting communities to diversify economies. And the, and the fourth is municipal infrastructure and fiscal sustainability. That's what we've been hearing from the people that live, work, um, and do business here in the Western provinces. Paul, when we're talking about, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the West, um, we're talking about, let's clarify here, are we talking BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba? Because if so, obviously we're talking about a ton of different industries and, and we can't talk about what's, you know, good, what's a good fit in Yorkton and what's a good fit in Prince George and, and what's a good fit in, in Estevan and, and then in Churchill, right? I mean, there's got to be some, some, some regional sensitivities to where this investment comes. Um, that is very correct. But as I said in those four priorities, it really covers how we can recover and bring uh, prosperity back to our communities. We heard loud and clear that our communities have had challenges even before the pandemic uh, came upon us, whether it was the low commodity prices, um, you know, or the challenges in the energy sector. sector. It affected all our municipalities. And uh, we've worked very hard to bring the, the communities together. And you've identified some of the challenges that might have been. But I have to say, um, chairing um, this uh, group of very, very um, experienced leaders, we are all working together to make the West the best it can be. Um, and uh, I know that uh, when we sit down and have these conversations, sometimes they're difficult conversations, but we have come out, um, you know, in favor of those four priorities. And that's what we've been working on uh, these past uh, year and a half. Paul, you're obviously president of the rural municipalities of Alberta. Uh, when we talk about this, I mean, you know, I, I think you talk to most people in Western Canada, they, they would acknowledge that there's a there, there are feelings of alienation and, and, and there's a sliding scale of how strongly people feel about that or how they might define it. Uh, but why is it necessary to have a, a Western presentation like this or a Western lobby, so to speak? Well, yeah, thanks, Ryan. You know, really, when you think about it, you know, you've heard it. There's there's angst there. There's there's people that are upset. They're not feel like they're not being heard. There's people that are worried about their livelihoods. And, and you got to imagine Alberta and, and Western Canada is, an, is the economic engine of Canada. Uh, it's amazing. We punch way above our weight uh, and we want to be heard. We want that to resonate. And, and definitely I'm hearing that the people that I represent, um, there's angst. They don't feel like they're being heard by Ottawa. And uh, this has been a fantastic gesture to get these folks together. And as, as, as Chair uh, Golden had said, uh, this is diverse, and you've even acknowledged that. But at the same time, whether it's fiber or oil and gas, we need to do nation building. We need to actually have this government uh, recognize and start to push us forward. We need to actually, post-pandemic, we need to get this economy moving forward. Uh, whether it's fiber, lentils, or oil and gas, we need to get those corridors going and move product from A to B across Canada, as, as well as exporting. Mayor, you obviously I would imagine you could probably right now whip up a list of five things that you think would, would kickstart the economy in, in Saskatoon and, and probably in that beautiful region of Saskatchewan. When we talk about things like, you know, expanding energy corridors or, or rail safety improvement programs, which I think is relevant to people in rural and urban areas. I mean, uh, I think of Lac Antique, the obvious example, but there are other examples too. Wabaman, just 40 minutes from our studio, ask them about rail safety and the, the impact of oil spill. What are a couple of things that you think? I mean, what, what's what's Saskatoon now? 400, 500,000 people, something like about, about a half a million people. What, what would you like to see that, you know, would really help the cities here? 
So we're, one of the things that we're looking at and that the anxiety that Paul's talking about is, is something that we know is being faced from communities right across the West because the resource industries are changing, technology is changing, jobs are being lost to automation and, uh, and the future is now moving into technological-based uh, uh, employment and, and in regions like ours that have been based on resources, we know we need to be part of those solutions as well as the transition around renewables and clean energy. So in our city in Saskatoon, we've been a hub for food production uh, and agricultural innovation for a long time. Um, and we think and believe, you know, that we've got a strong future as a ep global epicenter for food production, but we need to make a shift towards the val instead of just shipping all the lentils and, and chickpeas and wheat off raw uh, and, and uh, buying it back, you know, uh, for buying the bread back for uh, where all the value added opportunities are created. <clears throat> we want to be doing that and uh, creating the opportunity, the, the, those value added jobs. Now there's a whole new world of plant-based proteins and ingredients processing and all of these things. And we're looking to create uh, uh, hubs for that value-added processing that, that, that creates more opportunities here. We need the support of the federal government. Um, and uh, so one of the examples of what they're proposing is around the future of Western economic diversification uh, and, and expanding and uh, that uh, regional development authority. Um, and they have a very strategic role to play. And so we've been working with Minister Jolie as well as our provincial governments and, and this is one example of what comes to the table at the West Task Force. And so if we come together, urban and rural, uh, with a joint message that these are that we need to be and can be part of the economic drivers of the future and the jobs of the future, but we need to work together and be strategic, um, urban and rural and all levels of government together. And that's been uh, the focus of, of, uh, of, of our work and, and some of our advocacy. Mayor, I think I, I, I just Googled Saskatoon metropolitan area, and I think I gave you credit for about 100,000 more citizens than you currently have. But, but <laughs> may, maybe I'm just optimistic. You know, I've driven through Saskatoon, beautiful city. I think there's room for growth there. You'd probably agree. We had, we've had 70,000 people move here in the last 10 years, and we, uh, we believe we're on a, a real trajectory to continue to grow because we have incredible quality of life. Uh, we also need to make sure we're being really adaptive and, and creating opportunity, you know, as, as the economy changes. So, um, and the, one of the things I just want to highlight that's been really great about the Western Economic Solutions Task Force is often people focus on an urban-rural divide, especially right across North America, you know, but it's often something that comes up here uh, in the West as well. And, uh, and, and it's been just amazing to sit down the, the mayors of the biggest cities across the region as well as uh, rural leaders and find out just how much common ground we have and how much we know that it's the local expertise and the local knowledge uh, that needs to be a fundamental part of building those solutions, building those opportunities, driving the investment and the entrepreneurialism uh, towards uh, a new economy. And so I, I did want to make sure we highlight that because uh, I've learned things and through some of those difficult conversations, we've found uh, that there's actually really a way forward that includes both rural and urban together uh, building that future. Councillor Golden, I know I know that there's a, a, a plea or a call or a demand, however you want to phrase it, uh, a suggestion that the federal government specifically assist farmers uh, with some of the added costs related to carbon pricing. And, and, and I would say I, I come from not not me. There's not a lot of calluses on my hands, but I come from a farming family. And my cousins have shown me natural gas bills and I've seen dramatic rises. And, and I've also had a lot of conversations with reasonable people that support 
action on climate that support some form of carbon pricing that recognize that we need to do something but that really have a problem with how they feel that agricultural producers are being unfairly treated here and and i think if you had people like me that live in urban areas show the the cost increases that we've seen with regards to the carbon tax and then a farmer were to show their cost increases it would it would undeniably be disproportionate so what specifically, Randy, would you like to see from the federal government here? Well, and, and we uh, we have recognized that. And those are the discussions we've had around our table. And and as Mayor Clark said, uh, we recognize how important that is um, to our cities and to our larger communities, just as important as it is to our rural areas. So we have been asking for uh, compensation to our ag industry, to our farmers for the cost of federal carbon pricing on the grain drying specifically and on heating the barns. Uh, we know that there is a private members bill that is also asking for this and we're supporting that. And uh, we've also been talking with uh, uh, the leaders uh, both on uh, in government and the uh, the opposition parties and we've had support for that. So we're very pleased about that and we can actually show the impact that it's having on our farming communities and what that means to them and how that impacts our communities. My community of 20,000 of uh, 20,000 people is uh, the largest uh, community in the east central area of Saskatchewan. And uh, we have two canola crushing plants. We have a oak producing uh, uh, plant here in Yorkton also. And uh, let me tell you, uh, that really drives our community. We've got value-based uh, agriculture, as Mayor Clark has said, and that's a real driver in our community, whether it's uh, employees or providing it to our property taxes. Uh, we need this and we see the importance of it. And we're going to be working uh, with our rural partners on this. Paul, this is this is an inch. I, I, I'm going to throw a couple hot potatoes at you uh, because I know you won't mind. We've, we've got our live chat here. We've got some great points on it. Kaylin, uh, who now watches from Vancouver, uh, used to live in Edmonton. She says as somebody who used to live in the only orange riding in Alberta, uh, I felt more alienated from the province than I did from Ottawa. The idea of alienation is just perpetuating political divides. I've got another uh, viewer right now that, that says I'd be curious to know where did the comment go? I'll, I'll paraphrase says I'd be curious to know how these three would 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 suggest that, uh, you know, does it, essentially the comment is, does it make your job more difficult with Alberta's premier constantly picking fights with the prime minister, constantly picking fights with the federal government? Does this idea of alienation or the manifestation of it make the lobby or efforts to cooperate more difficult? You know, and it's a go ahead, a great, Paul. Oh, sure. And it, it's a great I have this conversation on a regular basis and and the rest of the crew knows this. So we, we get polarization and I think polarization is this wedge. And when you get down and you tell our story, you tell the story as Western Canadians and exactly what said we're entrepreneurial. We're ready to rock and roll. We see the future. We're going to move into the future. Uh, we're all people at the end of the day. COVID has not picked parts of the of the country. We've all been affected negatively, and I think that we got to quit using polarization in our politics. We're municipal leaders. FCM is nonpartisan. Uh, I represent a nonpartisan organization. Uh, I'm not. I don't care what you voted in federal, provincial election. Let's solve problems on behalf of Canadians. Let's solve problems on behalf of Western Canadians. Let's solve problems on the on the people we represent too, as well. 
Uh, it's tough. My kids are talking about polarization. They see it in the media. I say, you know what? Let's just learn. Let's learn from each other. Let's have a talk, a rational talk. Let's solve problems. And the fact is, I'm a horse guy. And you know what? Uh, as an Albertan, we kind of fell off our horse. But you know what? Albertans don't get, they, we get back on that horse. And that's who we are. That's who we are as Canadians. That's who we are as Albertans. That's who we are from folks from Saskatoon. So give us the ability to get back on our horse and we'll get back on our horse and we'll get this thing done. Mayor, uh, let, let me ask you about, uh, we, we talked a little bit about rail yesterday in a completely unrelated context. Uh, I was talking to an expert about where Canada's airline industry is right now. And um, a professor out of McGill, former Air Canada executive, says to me, uh, if we lose air travel in Canada, what are you, he goes essentially like we're left with rail. And what was really interesting is, number one, you go, OK, yeah, that's maybe not totally realistic to ride trains across the country. But then a whole bunch of people like like a, a noticeable number of people started commenting to me, say, saying, look what what's going on in France and look what France is doing with high speed rail and look what Japan has done with high speed rail. And, and what about high speed rail corridors? And there's always that one people talk about Calgary to Edmonton. But I bet you and I could talk about, you know, Edmonton or Calgary to Saskatoon or whatever across Canada network. Obviously, rail's been a, a bigger deal. Uh, with, you know, the, the some of the disappointing news for, for pipeline advocates and, and some of the cancellations or or or, you know, court battles around pipelines and rail has seen heavier pressure. All you need to do is talk to farmers to ask them what that's done to to rail car capacity. I mean, we can hit this from 15 different angles. But as the mayor of the city of Saskatoon, why would an investment in the rail safety improvement program, maybe aside from the obvious, the safety what would that potentially do to your city, to your province? Do you think to the country? I mean, we we've had a number of different uh, derailments of, of train cars very close to our city or or uh, and and in, and in our region uh, just in the last couple of years. And every time one of those happens, people you know uh, panic a little bit and think, "What would happen if if we had a Lac Megantic in the middle of Saskatoon?" And because we see these derailments happening. Um, including oil car derailments in Saskatchewan, um, uh, it, it, uh, it is a big concern. I mean, it, it, you just wait and wonder if, if one of those is going to hit. So any of those investments in rail safety, we know that rail is moving more and more um, goods, more and more oil and more and more hazardous goods. You know, we have yellow cake moving through uh, our province as well. And so um, it's, it's a huge, we know it's going to be and will continue to be a fundamental part of our trade network. We know it's a very, very important part of how we get our products to market. And uh, we, we just also want to know it's going to be as safe as possible. And, and one of the other innovating, uh, innovative projects that the, the Western Economic Solutions Task Force has been talking about is also an infrastructure uh, court, a national utility corridor where we proactively start to get um, <clears throat> identified a utility corridor that could uh, could be at the place that future pipelines go that gets and figures out the right approval processes, working with indigenous communities, municipalities, provincial governments, stakeholders, uh, and to proactively get those corridors in place that would also help to deal with some of those concerns about getting products to market, dealing with the uncertainties of uh, the approval processes and uh, and environmental assessments and and uh, and so these are this is one of the key focuses. We know that we will still be trade dependent. We need to make sure goods are moving safely and that we have the capacity uh, to to make those utility corridors and interconnect our province between or our country, sorry, between east and west better so that we uh, can be more energy independent as well. And so this is one of the areas of innovation 
that we want to really promote and drive as uh, as part of and it's it's come up through our conversations and hearing between our urban and rural leaders as i mentioned um uh that that we see this opportunity and i think one of the just adding the importance of getting indigenous uh, partnerships in place you know we saw with the Wet'suwet'en, you know, blockades, the anxiety that comes up when when we're we're reactively trying to address issues around uh, indigenous involvement in these projects, and uh, so by by everybody coming together and identifying proactively where and how to move these goods across, we think we can make some real progress in nation building as well. Um, I, I know that the three of you all have commitments that start at nine fifteen. Uh, if people watching and listening live, that means that we've got about five minutes left here in the conversation, and I want to make sure that that you know we we. We end up with our our audience members focusing in the right direction, you know, keen to see or keen to understand what maybe they'll be looking for on Monday out of this budget when it drops. I'm intrigued by this proposal from your group, from the Western Economic Solutions Task Force from West that proposes an energy transition community infrastructure fund. And and you talk a lot about energy transition. and, And I've seen some people that whose eyes just light up at the potential that they see here. And I also sense a heavy cynicism from some people that, that think it's absolutely idiotic that we're, we're, we're looking to move off oil and gas and, and they, you know, they, they have great cynicism around wind and energy and, you know, I mean, solar rather and, and, and all of the things. I don't think I need to get into it because I think everybody's heard it. Everybody knows that one or two person in their own circle that has great cynicism around it. Uh, Counselor, l- let me start with you first. How much of, of our attitude collectively needs to shift? Like, how, how, how much do we need as civilians, as people, as workers, um, as skilled tradespersons, as executives, as accountants, as lawyers need to start buying into or really legitimately considering what an energy transition or an energy future might look like? Oh, Ryan, I am going to turn that over to uh, President uh, McLaughlin because he lives and breathes this. And uh, I will say that it's it's a shift that's happening. It's a shift that's happening right now because it's a necessity that we have to go through. Uh, we see that with our young people and some of the things that are happening um, in our communities. Uh, we see the cost of it. So I, I truly believe that that's happening. Every time I uh, um, look at Twitter or or pick up uh, any news releases. I'm seeing some of the very innovative things that are happening. Just today, uh, early this morning, I heard some great news coming out of the um, the hydrogen hub in, in the heartland of Alberta. And uh, here in Saskatchewan, we're seeing what's going on in our south uh, um, eastern portion of our province with helium development. So those are the things that are going to move us in that shift. But I know that uh, President Paul would love to... Uh, to uh, come in onto this conversation before we have to leave. Yeah, well, thanks, Rand. And you and you hit some great points that I'd hit too. And I think that uh, my conversation is always around this. Let's find a common language. Carbon sequestration, uh, agricultural uh, operations in Alberta, forestry in northern BC. We've been sequestering carbon, and there's ways for us to work at this conversation. Um, I'm speaking to you on solar right now. We have a geothermal system in my office, and uh, as well as at home, I run on on micro wind and micro solar. I still require hydrogen uh, based project, carbon based projects to heat my house. So this is a mass balance conversation. But at the same time, this is, I think, a lot more opportunity than a transition. It's not disruption, it's actually us pivoting and changing and really providing what the market wants. This is what people want. 
Uh, this is what my, my children's generation wants. And Albertans can do this. We're doing this now. That innovation's occurring. We have the energy. We have the skills. We have an incredible number of people here that have a skilled workforce, force, and we're moving towards that. So we have to quit taking energy transitions as an insult and look at it as an opportunity. We need to find that common language and bridge that. I think the future of Alberta is actually going to continue to use carbon in a, in a, in a mechanism that actually makes this a better world. And we know how to do that as Albertans, for sure. I can already tell you right now, Sam, that's the clip we're going to use later when we promote this interview. Paul, very well done. Sometimes they just jump right out at us and we know what we're going to use. Uh, that was very well said. Uh, Mayor, it's 914 we're doing this live mountain time, which means that we've got one more minute with you all. So I'm going to give you last word. Uh, what would you like to see? I mean, on Monday with regards to maybe what we haven't talked about or what would you like to reiterate that we've just heard? Yeah, I mean, we want to be part of the solution. I, I heard that clip, too. I thought uh, he, Paul just nailed it. And uh, and so we're looking for $600 million uh, towards the Western Economic Diversification for our regional development agencies. The new Energy Transition Community Fund is, is moving the conversation from whether we're going to uh, make changes to adapt to a changing future around carbon to how are we going to do it and be part of that solution, knowing that Oil and gas will be with us for a long time and we need to support that. Uh, but we also know we need to be proactive and be part of the conversations around building solutions and that our communities want to be on the front lines of helping build those solutions. And uh, and so that's that's the key moment that we're in right now is uh, is 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 moving to the conversation about how are we going to do it and how do we make sure the voices of uh, the local communities are, are on the front lines. And, and that's what's been so great about uh, rural and urban participation in, in the Western Economic Solutions Task Force, bringing these solutions directly to the federal government and to our provincial governments as well. That is uh, Mayor Charlie Clark out of the city of Saskatoon, uh, Councillor Randy Golden out of the city of Yorkton, chair of the Western Economic Solutions Task Force. Paul McLaughlin is president of the rural municipalities of Alberta. Thanks to the three of you for the perspective for the conversation today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Yeah, this uh, there you go. So that's, I mean, Sam, that's that's a pretty interesting conversation. I I, uh, I really like the way that Paul approaches. I think I think reasonable, I think accurate in his assessment of what an energy transition is. Stop seeing it as a threat. See it as an opportunity, um, recognizing that there's going to be a role for fossil fuels. Uh, I think that most um, this is an editorial statement on my part. Most reasonable people acknowledge that there is still a future and in some circumstances and in some contexts a bullish future for oil and gas uh, i mean albeit there's there's a horizon um you know there's there's obviously uh you know a window that will ultimately close just like you know the families that own the empires in 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 whale fat and you know blubber that fueled street lanterns but um you know i, I had a guy who's uh, family had a bunch of pay phones. They owned a bunch of these pay phone opportunities and, uh, you know, asked them how that wound up going. People that own blockbuster videos. We've talked about some of these in past shows, but I think that was a reasonable assessment. I think he's right about the opportunity. Um, and of course, our, our real talkers have some really great points as well. I think it was Greg that I saw back. I'm, I'm going off the top of my head here, but he said something along the lines of why do we keep talking? Here it is. He says, I hate this. This we're entrepreneurial talk point. Um, he said, if we're all such great entrepreneurs, wouldn't we be divesting from oil and gas naturally? We're not anymore. We're we're sticking our heels in, which is an interesting point. I mean, if we're going to celebrate and this is a conversation about B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. But I think most especially we just focused based on who we were talking to on on, on the prairie provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, you do see it a lot 
you know, what's Alberta all about? The can-do spirit, the can-do attitude, problem-solving, ingenuity, innovation, the entrepreneurial spirit, like Greg said. And it's true, and there's plenty of evidence there, but if we're going to be honest and introspective and have some real talk, like Greg, like Greg alludes to, sometimes we don't see a whole lot of a, of a commitment to innovation and to uh, managing adversity and finding silver linings and making lemonade, so to speak. And we see a little bit more angst and anger and a desire to stick to the, you know, the more traditional ways. I mean, I, I don't I don't think that that's a controversial statement at all. Yeah, I where I guess a big takeaway from this is, is uh, first of all, I love the I just I, I do think the narrative has to become this is an opportunity. This is not a transition. This is not a thing that needs to be viewed as a negative. Um in terms of that, if we're entrepreneurial, would we be doing this already? We are doing this already. And I say that industry is doing this already. Industry and large financial capital is already divesting from oil and gas and putting all their money into renewables. And so we're in a position right now where the government incentives need to follow that. You know, we're, we're kind of in this place. It's a lot of sunk cost fallacy, which is, you know, sort of the business term for when you've invested in something and you're so tied to the fact that you've put money into this thing, even though it kind of doesn't have value anymore. And, and the right solution would be to, to, you know, drop it and move on. And I'm not saying Alberta needs to drop and move on from oil and gas. Far from it. It's, it's still an industry that's going to be very important for us for a few decades. I think you and I might disagree on the timeline of that, but we both agree that it's going to be important for us. I don't a while, know that we would disagree right? on the yeah. timeline. What would, what, would you, what would you peg the rough timeline at? I'd say, you know, probably reasonably, I'd say 20 years would be a good framework for Alberta. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I I think, you know, you look at market indicators, which which oftentimes are market indicators say it'll be faster. Some of the most important ones. Right. You look at, you know, this is just cherry picking one example. And some would say, well, you're totally oversimplifying the whole argument. And I would say, yeah, you're right. Uh, But we can only tackle one thing at a time. Um, You know, automakers. Yeah. That's one example of what automakers are doing. I mean, some of them are, are saying we'll be completely electric. Our lineup will be completely. We're talking about companies like General Motors. We're not talking about electric by 2035. Yeah. Yeah. 14 years from now. I know. You know, so I mean, that's, you know, I mean, my son's five. He'll be 19. Like, obviously, that's a long time from now in one context. So I always view life in the family context. You know, I also think that at the same time, you know, when when you look at 14 years, it's also an instant like that's 2007. So when Wyatt graduates university, he's getting like a brand new electric Camaro. Is that what you're telling me here? Camaro. Well, we said we're just talking about GM. A Camaro. I'm, I'm trying to no. I no. You know, respect to the Camaro. Respect to the Camaro. Hey, uh, I actually love. Actually, yeah. if I if I, I had mean, they an, did actually I just had, discontinue it again. If so. I had unlimited funds, yeah. and a ma- if I was Jay Leno and I was building a garage like that, I would have a '68 Camaro. Beauty. Um, I also love the early '80s. They're 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 not the same, but mm-hmm. I understand. But the Trans Am, the Firebird. Like yes. I'm talking with the gold honeycomb wheels. The Firehawk. Well, on but the, I mean, hood. the thing is, is they kind of are the same car, right? I mean, like you know, Chevy, Chevy and Pontiac built them on the same chassis. Sure, yeah. But if you start saying that the Camaro and the Firebird are the same car, are the audience, the niche that is the Camaro and Firebird crowd will oh, erupt. Yes. They will erupt. <laughs> it's like calling the Ford Tempo and the Mercury Topaz the same thing. They're not, but they are. 
have you read the impact of green investors uh, it's a piece that's just out in the economist i'm working on a we're working on putting a segment together on this for next week uh but it's interesting let me just read a couple of lines this is out of the economist this is out of the you know recent sustainable investing is in the firing line as two recent events have shown last week the board of denon you know like yogurt and all the other food a french food maker fired its boss emmanuel faber who had long championed the benefits of stakeholder capitalism and sustainability. Shareholders were unhappy with the firm's languishing share price. The next day, USA Today published an opinion piece by Tarek Fancy, a former head of sustainability at BlackRock, which is big time, the world's biggest asset manager, which says it puts climate change at the center of its investment strategy. You remember when the CEO's uh, annual letter came out from BlackRock talking about pulling investment away from oil and gas. It caused major ripples across Western Canada. Mr. Fancy called investing that takes into account ESG, environmental, social governance, environmental, social and governance factors. He called those, quote, this is the former head of sustainability at BlackRock called ESG as an investment strategy, little more than marketing hype. PR spin and disingenuous promises. He pointed to ESG. Why am I like so immature today? I'm just about I'm being serious. Mr. Fancy said, but it sounds like I'm trying to be critical of it. No, it's his name. Mr. Fancy says that. It, no, he does. He pointed to these ESG funds that invest in big polluters uh, like oil firms and, and BlackRock, by the way, his former affiliate says that it disputes the claims. But it's an interesting comment. And The Economist is writing about it. So I'm always curious to know what you think about this. Christina, who's watching live, says, I attended our Corporate Environmental Day webinar. She says we're a multinational company. It says one glaring point was the lack of accessibility of green tech, especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan. It says Alberta has a nuclear or Ontario rather has nuclear power, as an example, says Christina. So interesting points. We're going to get to some of your emails in just a moment. Of course, I wanted to remind you that if, if you've got a dog, uh, you, of course, I don't have to tell you, they're your family and you do anything for your family, including ensuring that they're eating the healthiest food, the food that's best for them that you can possibly procure. I encourage you to check out granddog.ca. This show is a proud partner of Grand Dog Essentials, quality raw food. And if you use the promo code REALTALK on their website right now, they'll give you 10% off your first order. The order that they deliver right to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, or Central Alberta. We're working with their nutritionists to help our dogs ensure that they have the most custom possible diet and it doesn't blow the bank either it'll surprise you depending on what your dog needs this is something you might be able to make happen and and probably will especially when you consider all things like the health of your family members the four-legged ones too granddog.ca where you'll find grand dog essentials the team at alta moving and storage knows that this is the time of year people are starting the spring cleaning projects it might be time that you finally decide to transform that one room the junk room the, the storage room into actual usable space. If you're looking for a storage locker, you'll find them at Alta Moving and Storage. They've also got those pod-style moving containers. They drop them off at your house. You fill them up, or they have hired hands that can help you out. And then they get it to your destination stress-free at altastorage.ca. Appreciated this email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This is from Chelsea a couple of days ago, and and she said, I'll, I'll keep this concise, Ryan, as I know you must be... Uh, drowning in letters and emails. Chelsea says, I'm deeply, deeply concerned 
that firefighters are not part of the current vaccination schedule. Firefighters tend to be the first to arrive on scene, whether that be to a car accident or a medical call. They're being sent to COVID quarantine hotels, homes, hospitals, care facilities. They're caring for folks that are COVID positive on a daily basis. Many of them live with fear and anxiety about bringing it home to their loved ones or the potential of being an unknown uh, carrier an unknown carrier and, and, and spreading COVID to others on the job as well as vulnerable community members that they support. Chelsea says, although they are important jobs, I am disheartened to see that acupuncturists, chiropractors, massage therapists have been listed before firefighters. She says, make this make sense. She says the premier has failed to provide a measure of safety for essential frontline workers and the people that they come into contact with. And I hope that the provincial government of Alberta will deeply reflect on this and and with a level of immediacy, reconsider that firefighters be included in the current 2C phase. She says, I sign off filled with frustration. Chelsea, I know that we'll probably have acupuncturists and chiropractors and massage therapists that are going, hey, what the hell, man? But it's pretty easy to make the argument that firefighters should be there at the top of the list. They are the first responders, police officers, paramedics. And this was an email that jumped out at us as well. This was from Mike and and Mike's subject line reads COVID or vaccine deniers. And he says, I'm confused through this pandemic. I, I continue to hear people downplay COVID, oftentimes saying things like it's just a flu and the amount of people that actually die from it is is negligible. But when they're asked, when people are asked about whether or not they're going to get the vaccine, they immediately will say the same people. Hell no. You know, people have been getting blood clots. Uh, some have become very sick or even died from receiving the vaccine. Mike says, as is the case with many, if not all other vaccines, there are minute chances of some form of side effect. But that number is even smaller than what these COVID deniers are basing initial beliefs on. So I'm confused. He said, I'm not concerned, you know, or they're not concerned about COVID because the numbers are apparently so small, but they're terrified about vaccines, even though the numbers are even smaller. One might even say negligible. I think Mike just wanted to see me pronounce that word because he's got a little winky face there. He says these people need to pull their heads out of their asses. And that includes my in-laws. He says it would be a real shame if they could if they couldn't continue to see their year and a half old granddaughter due to such ignorance that from Mike will keep his last name out of this. We're not looking to start family fights. It's not every day that we get emails or correspondence from our, our younger audience members, but I loved this from Margaret C. Margaret C. is a grade eight student in the Calgary Board of Education. And she writes in to media personality Jesperson. She says, I'm a grade eight student in the CBE and I'm writing you to express my concern about the new program of education from kindergarten to grade six for the French as a first language schools. I myself have attended a Francophone school for several years. Margaret says a couple strengths that I found in the program. There's been appropriate attention to homophones and essential grammatical basics fixing mispronounced words and anglicisms and practicing self-evaluation these are all important for elementary school 
Unfortunately, there were some weaknesses, like the need to put more emphasis on verbs throughout all grades. Terms in the knowledge section should be simplified for at-home learning. Terminology should be improved in all grades. There is a certain knowledge lacking. This is a grade eight student writing this. I'm going to get Margaret to write all my speeches when I have to address groups. There is a certain knowledge lacking from this new curriculum, including summarizing. This should be more apparent in all grades. More time should be put aside for French reading and at home reading. It should be encouraged. You should be able to choose your own book and learning presentation skills should be taught earlier. I hope people will take my suggestions into consideration. Sincerely, Margaret C. That is amazing, Margaret. Please do continue to keep in touch. It's amazing to know that the leaders of today and tomorrow are participating in our conversations on Real Talk. Shane says right now live, I'm trying to think of what I was doing in grade eight. I'll tell you what I was doing in grade eight. I was asking my orthodontist for purple and yellow elastics on my braces for the Los Angeles Lakers playoff run. That's what I was doing in grade eight, walking around with a purple and yellow brace set on my teeth. Sam, I suppose in grade eight, you were probably solving high level. That's, that's Physics theories. And <laughs> no, I'm t- I've, oh, grade eight. What, what do you learn in grade eight science? Cell biology, I think. Um, that might be the amoeba and paramecium conversation. Very we had well could today. be. Yeah. No, I was I was a regular kid in grade eight. I certainly wasn't writing letters to the media. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Isn't that awesome to know that she's watching or listening to this? And, mm-hmm. and probably, I, I hope, passing it along to her classmates that this yeah. is the type of show that welcomes their feedback, that wants to hear from them. Kim says, I love that letter. Kids are amazing. And by the way, she's right. Terry says, wait, this kid's in grade eight. Is that our next prime minister? Linda Ray says, Jason Kenny is terrified of kids like this. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I lean personally sometimes where, you know, particularly things like like climate change and a lot of social justice issues, like the things that just make me mad on a regular basis. I look at our younger generation and how much more angry they are about it. And, and I'm just like, the kids are smart. We're going to be all right. Um, this is an interesting comment. Daniel on our live chat says, I'm, I'm watching Aaron O'Toole propose a live carbon plan uh, right now on national news. Uh, and he says in the live chat is, well, everybody's glued to what we're talking about, Daniel. But you're right. Aaron O'Toole is releasing it. And it's interesting. This is the type of thing as it happens when we're live. For the most part, we're going to talk about it tomorrow. Uh, we're going to get to it tomorrow. But I had an interesting exchange. Let, let me let me show you this, Sam. I'm just going to um, we'll take a second here and I'll share my screen. Um this guy is uh, a, a do I call him a political commentator? I guess so. Uh, he's an outspoken and he wouldn't see it as an insult, an outspoken right winger um, in Alberta by the name of Corey Morgan. And he's done some work writing for um, uh, Western Standard. And uh, I, I know he's probably not everybody's cup of tea. That's totally fine. But uh, I thought that this was an interesting insight into how a lot of people are going to feel about Aaron O'Toole's climate plan. And so um, what are you saying? Just say it live because I can't tell you. No, I was saying close your downloads. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who cares? Okay. Yeah. I mean, not not who cares. Oh, I didn't see why you want me to close it because of the, the file name naked. Um, <laughs> Corey Morgan this morning. Not, not every. By the way, hey, for a moment of seriousness, pull this back to us for a second. For a moment of seriousness, I do want to acknowledge in the live chat. Actually, a lot of you were totally unimpressed that we shared that photo. So I'll acknowledge that. Um, and, and, you know, we can walk that back. I I. 
let me say this is real talk this is how i really feel about it um i think it's unfortunate for that mp i don't think it's a big deal some of you said oh so he's hot so it's okay that you share it that's not the point i made <laughs> the point i made was as a politician i don't think it's the worst uh if you get caught on camera showing off your six pack i think it's ridiculous that someone would say he's going to lose his job over it if anything he's going to become more popular but i'll acknowledge as we did in the chat that a lot of you said you know what shouldn't be sharing that photo he has not consented to have the photo shared it shouldn't have been screen grabbed in the first place fair enough we're going to leave that one alone we're not going to keep talking about it i do think the situation is a bit unfortunate for him but i, I also think it's hilarious um and 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 not everybody finds everything hilarious at the same time which is totally fine Let's get back to this. Corey Morgan tweets this morning and says, Aaron O'Toole, leader of Canada's conservatives, has repackaged Trudeau's carbon tax and will try to sell it to us in the next election. And so I asked Corey, this was this was like, I don't know, three minutes before we went live on the show. I said, honest question. If you could support a party that could achieve government with a climate policy that's, that's saleable to the general public or support a party that would forever be in opposition, largely based on a principled stand against meaningful climate action or climate policy, would the latter be your choice? And he responded to me and he said, some of the best federal governance we've ever seen in living memory was from the Kretchen liberals with an effective reform opposition. I prefer to stick on principle. So in his mind, and, and that's fine, he's entitled to his opinion. I, I, you know, I would obviously completely disagree with him. Um, you know, he believes that, that Preston Manning did such a good job in opposition with the Reform Party of Canada. And maybe Corey might make the argument that Preston Manning paved the way for Stephen Harper to ultimately achieve with a unified conservative movement, a majority government. And, and you could certainly make the argument over time. But this is what a lot of Canada's conservatives will have to ask themselves. This is what you will have to ask yourself. And that is with an election that you should have won in 2019. The sitting prime minister had multiple photos and videos of blackface out there. And that was just one thing that you could hit the Trudeau liberals on at that time. That was just one thing. But he was vulnerable. As Peter McKay, who missed an open net on a breakaway, said about Aaron o or rather Andrew Scheer, the conservatives missed an open net on a breakaway. And if you and, and you'll say, well, we got the most votes and that's true. But you didn't get them where you needed them, like absolutely dominated the prairies where you typically always dominate, you know, with the exception of what, four liberal MPs in 2015 out of Alberta. And maybe we'll see a couple more depending on who accepts nominations and who runs for the liberals next federal election. I think we could see some interesting names. I think we might see some pretty familiar political names out of the province of Alberta involved in the next federal election. Hint, hint. But for the most part, conservatives, you know, as people say, could run a blue painted cardboard box in a lot of ridings and win. You need the votes in Vancouver and Montreal and rural Quebec and Toronto and the Maritimes. And what do voters there say? And what did they tell pollsters after the election? They didn't perceive the conservatives to have a legitimate climate plan. That's what they said. And if there was one, they would consider voting for the party and the party might win and the party might form government. And I find it really hard to believe. Well, maybe I shouldn't because we see it in Alberta all the time. And, and, and quite frankly, we're watching the early stages of the United Conservative Party fall apart again. And there will be a spinoff movement. And, and maybe by the next provincial election, there's 17 
MLAs that signed their name to a letter that has basically earned their way out of a potential cabinet position for the rest of the time that Jason Kenney has any influence in Alberta's provincial politics. Says to me that some folks are pretty much sitting with their bags packed at the door right now, ready to go. So maybe there are people that would rather stand on principle and stick to their guns on absolutely everything and never achieve government. But I think that Aaron O'Toole right now is doing what his advisors and what he probably realizes he has to do if he ever wants to be prime minister of Canada. What do you think? I, I want to ask a broader question that that has been kind of sitting with my mind for a while. And, and, and it's just the question of like in Canada, do united right-leaning parties work and and i say that because we've seen cycles over and over and over again where you know in the 80s we had the pcs and the reforms and they realized that to form government they had to merge so we created the new conservative party of canada they've had one successful leader one very unsuccessful leader and one leader trying to break some new ground in a little bit more of a centrist thing then you look at alberta and you look at how you know, the the conservative side of the aisle in Alberta was fractured into the wild rose and the, the you know, the longstanding PC government and decided that their only way back to the legislature was unity. And the moment they got into power, the cracks inside the party started to fall and people are starting to talk about fractures again. And I, I, I ask as a very honest question as a political watcher in Canada, if there just isn't enough room for a big tent conservative party when we have two very split bases, you know? So that's kind of my macro view of this is that I think that, you know, on, on a level as, as a person that like personally doesn't really support the conservatives, I'm really, really happy to see them taking climate change seriously, putting market-based solutions on the table, using carbon pricing as an effective tool towards it. Like I think that is backed by world economists, one of the directions we need to go in. Yeah. But at the same time, I know that there's a part of their base that will see that as a reason to walk away from them. And I don't know how you reconcile those things. Um, Greg, I mean, I, I feel like if, if, if we had our, uh, you know, if we had sort of like a uh, comment of the day or a commenter of the real talker of the day or real talker of the week, Greg would qualify because I think this is his third comment that I've read this morning, but I, I appreciate what he's come, what he's bringing to the conversation. He wonders why can't conservatives be fresh with ideas? Why is why is it always a we don't like the liberal approach to whatever conversation, whatever happened to being original and bringing in new ideas? Because the distaste for the other parties kind of really seems to be the dominant uniting force with conservatives in Canada. It's how these it's how right? politicians can score points. Exactly. It, it's it's you know, the conservative party is very much less about conservative principles or market based principles or whatever it is that they say they are and more about hating Trudeau. Yeah. Uh, Blaine is watching, says, you know, the problem with Justin Trudeau, in my opinion, says Blaine, is too much style and not enough substance. His cabinet, his party have the substance to back him up. But he himself strikes me as an empty suit that from Blaine. Daniel says, are you saying a blue Dodge pickup is a cardboard box? (laughs) Speaking of Dodge pickups, you know, you can find the best selection. I know it wasn't even time for this, but I just what it was on a silver platter. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I'm obviously going to remind you that the team at Sherwood Dodge and St. Albert Dodge have 
literally the best selection when it comes to the Dodge Ram lineup, the Ram 15, 25, and 3500 of any dealerships in the province. And of course, because they work together, if they don't have it on one lot, they probably have it on the other. Now's a great time to check him out with awesome financing options. And while you're there, ask him about the Jeep lineup as well. They're ready to go. 2021's a huge year. I can't wait to see the Grand Wagoneer. I'm waiting for the first one I see on the road. That's always a big deal, right? Yeah. Because we see the mock-ups. We see the, you know, everybody gets the track photos. You know, a car driver will tweet them out and say, ooh, our first look at the Ford Bronco. And then I saw the Ford Bronco on the road the other day and I went, eh. It's like, eh. The Grand Wagoneer, this new Jeep one, we're talking back in the day, this was like the SUV before people called them SUVs. Oh, yeah. Back when they had the big, the, the, right, they, the, they wood, were the paneling. wood paneling. Yes. And that's like, I, I, okay, we've been doing, we've been doing ads for St. Albert Dodge since we launched and you've been bringing up the Grand Wagoneer and I've been hesitant to say, I'd like to see one with wood paneling. Why? But I'm going to say it straight up. Sam, I want to see a wood panel absolutely. one. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? I can't remember the guy's name. I mean, I remember his real name, Richard Dreyfus, but the character he played in What About Bob with Bill Murray. And you remember Bob is his patient and he keeps showing up at the cabin and, and Richard Dreyfus, whatever his character is, he drives a Grand Wagoneer, like an old school. I remember it. It's like a cultural icon. This commercial is like four minutes long. The Grand Wagoneer is coming back out. Make sure to check it out. Sherwood St. Albert Dodge. Also want to remind you that the team at Park Power with the promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca is prepared to refund $70 off your first bill when you bring your electricity, natural gas, or what did I miss? Electricity, natural gas, and internet business over to them at parkpower.ca. They take 10% of their profits, right? So you can be a part of this. You are a part of this. 10% of your profits go back to the nonprofits. You got to get your natural gas, your internet, your electricity from somebody. Why not save 70 bucks right now off your bill using 2021-RealTalk at parkpower.ca. Wanted to read a couple of emails before we start talking about, I'm looking forward to this conversation uh, on, it's, it's a conversation about rural crime, but it's more than that. And I know Jeff Morrison will get into it. He's the filmmaker. He's the producer of a series called Farm Crime. And they're, uh, they've just released season two on CBC Gem, but they do talk about rural crime and we'll get into that. And I know it'll be of interest to a lot of you, but also really unique story angles like like murder hornets and baby eels and and wild stuff and i'm looking forward to that conversation always want to remind you how much we appreciate you being in touch with the show so much so that sam has designed a brand new awesome graphic that we can overlay over our youtube broadcast look at this this is but you thought we were big time when we had studio lights you thought we were big time when we had more computers than we need you thought we were big time because we have leather studio chairs once you start superimposing graphics on your YouTube feed, ladies and gentlemen, one has arrived. You can talk to us using the hashtag RealTalkRJ. You can find us at RyanJesperson.com. And of course, our email is talk at RyanJesperson.com. That's where Cheryl found us yesterday. And she said, thank you so much for profiling the very real concerns of improper budgeting Yesterday at the University of Alberta's Faculty of Law, it was a tuition roundtable. Their tuition's going up 45%, and that's not even the highest bump up on the campus. Some people are seeing tuition up in the 65% range. Wild. Cheryl says, I'm a graduate of the Faculty of Law, and I've seen firsthand uh, the homogene homogeneity, homogenous nature. The homogeneity. I said that right. Huh? You Hom did. You did say that right. Homogeneity. It's a tough word. Yeah. The homogeneity. That already exists in this faculty. Cheryl's way smarter than me, obviously. 
She wonders, how do we create an equitable, diverse, and inclusive society when those who govern our laws are homogenous? How do our leaders and lawmakers understand oppression if they have only known privilege? It's not enough to say that we must make room for heterogeneous access to justice. We have to consciously create space. But if those who grew up in oppression and poverty do not have the same opportunities, do we really mean what we say? Or is it just token lip service? Lip service that continues to quietly support white privilege. When I entered law school in 2006, tuition had just doubled. I was in my 30s with a young family. I refinanced my home because the available scholarships and bursaries were not enough to cover tuition and living costs. I was surrounded by students raised in white privilege. I was surrounded and I wasn't even neurodivergent or trans or a person of color. It takes no education at all to understand that the law faculty is improperly addressing budget constraints by creating a class system that will harm our society in substantive ways. As the haves grow, the have nots will be crushed. All of this while the faculty of law claims to care about equity, diversity and inclusion. To the faculty of law, your actions speak so loudly, I cannot hear what you're saying. Cheryl says, thanks to Real Talk for ongoing support of diverse voices. I appreciate that. That's a powerful letter. I read that and I just went, whoa. I mean, let me, why did I put it on the floor? Let me read that again. How do we create an equitable, diverse, and inclusive society when those who govern our laws are homogenous? How do our leaders and lawmakers understand oppression if they have only known privilege? That is a great, we should take that and we should stamp that on the side of a building. That should be a mural. That should be something that we all stare at every time we make our way around or check our Instagram feed for that matter. That's the new advertising. Can I shamelessly plug something right now? Yeah. Okay, cool. Just because I was cutting it yesterday. Uh, we've talked about it on the show before. I'm working with YWCA Edmonton and Parody Yeg yes. on uh, Searching for Izena, a project uh, all about the history of uh, women on city council and women just in government in, in the Edmonton area. Uh, our next episode that comes out last week that I actually just finished the post on yesterday is all about the unbelievably shameful statistic that we have never had a woman of color or an indigenous woman on council in this city. We break down stories. Like never ever. Like never ever. Um, we talk to the first person of color, uh, first uh, woman of color, pardon me, to ever run in Edmonton. She actually lives in India right now. She's fantastic. We do a roundtable conversation with some women that have run and, and unsuccessfully went through it. Um, it is a fascinating episode. It's out next Tuesday very good if you want to lean a little bit more into the idea of having diverse voices in government because it's so important. Love it, Sam. Nice job. And a shout out to, to the entire team that's been working on that podcast. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's important to understand those stories. And, and sometimes, you know, something may have been fact for like 100 years, but it flies under our radar, like what you just reminded us of there. And I think it's so important, especially with municipal elections coming up. You know, something that should be on people's minds. This is a really neat uh, film project. It's, it's been undertaken by uh, a guy by the name of Jeff Morrison of Big Cedar Films. Uh, they've just launched their second season. Uh, it's a doc series, a documentary series called Farm Crime. It's a CBC doc that you can find on CBC Gem. They talk about everything from cattle rustling to fancy pigeons. I have no idea what that is, but we're going to find out. Uh, and of course, 
uh, some of the other stories that, that typically don't get told until documentary filmmakers get involved. It's a real pleasure to welcome Jeff Morrison to the show. First of all, congratulations on, on season two of, of Farm Crime. That's got to be pretty exciting stuff as a producer. Thanks, Ryan. It, uh, I mean, producing a show during a pandemic is a real trip. So, yeah, I'll take that. Thanks very much. Yeah. Have you have you did you do all filming? I mean, this is season two. Did you do all filming pre pandemic or have you been able to find a way to work throughout or how, how have you managed that? We did five of six episodes during the pandemic. We we filmed an episode last winter in February in Nova Scotia, and then we're basically down until August, and then picked up again in August um, in Nanaimo, and then filmed right through December. I think our last shoot was in um, was in Alberta, actually, in early December, as like COVID cases were just uh, you know just accelerating, and um, it was stressful terrifying um and yeah everyone had to adapt to filming uh, with like new procedures and safety measures and um and we did it thankfully and i mean post-production was a whole another um whole another journey but um but i mean people are getting it done so well and it's amazing to be able to keep uh creative professionals working uh and people that work in in film and tv to be able to keep them working through the pandemic because it's one of those industries you know it's it's actually i think in a way similar to oil and gas uh in that there were economic realities and there were a lot of difficulties that people were facing before the pandemic hit the pandemic just made it tougher yeah for sure i mean there's a lot of industries that um thankfully have been able to soldier on and find a way to do it safely. Um, the film and television industry for sure. I mean, in Ontario and Alberta too, I mean, the industry is really blowing up in Alberta right now, uh, really needed to keep going. Um, and thankfully they've been found a way to do it safely and the government stepped in with an insurance backstop. So, I mean, we're just we count ourselves lucky that uh, the industry has been able to continue and continue producing shows. Jeff, I've seen that from a number of people. We, we probably have a bunch of mutual friends, but a, a bunch of people that are actually pretty excited about some of the activity that they're seeing um, in film right now. And, and in particular in Alberta, I know that, that they'll tell probably similar stories in B.C. and other regions in Canada. What do you think? Why is that? What, what, what's what's prompting this? That's great news for people that are that have you know something to offer, but haven't been able to find a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I think Canada has been uh, been able to continue with the industry, whereas a lot of other uh, places, um, California has had to really like shut down. So there's been opportunities to keep filming. A lot of American shows are coming up here, especially shooting in Alberta and BC and Ontario. Studio spaces are blowing up. There's a new uh, service provider that's coming into Alberta as well. And then we're also seeing investment from the government. I mean, we're getting into the finance side of all this, but... Uh, they see the economic benefits of investing in the industry and by providing those tax credits. So I, um, I think that's why there's really an interest in, in keeping it going and, you know, bringing as much, you know, products and as many shows as possible. Jeff, how do you, but then you have your homegrown shows as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on uh, and there is a lot of opportunity. And then, and then with all these new platforms, I mean, CBC gem, if you would have asked somebody a number of years ago, nobody would even really know what that is. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to see how people pivot and how new opportunities have been made available when it comes to farm crime. I guarantee you a lot of people would say good. I mean, okay, good. So real talk uh, is going to bring in this guy. We're going to talk about farm crime and we're going to talk about rural crime, which is a real thing. And, and, and Ryan will probably steer the conversation to talk about like an Alberta police force because people say that the RCMP is inadequate. And we'll probably talk about firearms legislation because land and I can see Jeff's eyes going, oh, geez. And and oh, and, no, and, no, you want to talk. But, about- <laughs> but no, I do want to talk about it. But but I guess what I'm doing is I'm teeing this up to say your show, uh, your series is about 
so much more than typical conversations might be when it comes to farm crime. What what gave you the idea to do this or how did this come about? I mean, I, I, I kind of look back a couple of years ago. I mean, we're going back almost 10 years ago. The, the maple syrup theft in Quebec was this huge agricultural crime. And I think, I mean, I heard about it. And I was like, this is fascinating as if someone came up with the idea to steal $18 million worth of maple syrup and as if an agricultural product can be worth that much money. And what I also found interesting was the coverage of it. It's like, oh, it's hilarious. It's maple syrup. Like, this is so funny. People stole all this maple syrup. Um, but of course, there were real victims at the heart of this. People who had like sent their syrup off to the Federation or other people who um, had gotten caught up in trying to buy some of this like stolen syrup. And so I saw the real hard cost involved in that particular incident and then started noticing more agricultural crimes and also the tone in which they were being told, whether it was in like a small town newspaper or, you know, occasionally they get picked up and go viral um, by like a bigger media outlet. And I thought, well, wouldn't this be an interesting subject to explore in documentary? And instead of like, you know, having this kind of light tone, let's look at these incidents seriously. Let's tell these victim stories. Let's validate these stories because they're, I mean, they're fascinating. I mean, I, I make no bones about it. I'm, I'm, I'm a city guy. I, I grew up in and around Toronto and this show inherently has that lens of someone who's like curious about learning about rural communities and these types of incidents. And I think if there's a way to bring them to, especially like urban audiences that might not know about the cattle industry or, you know, the, the, the bee industry or some of the aquaculture industries we get into in the show and do it in a way that is serious and respectful, but also has a bit of that kind of like true crime storytelling. Um, it just seemed like kind of an interesting, interesting package, an interesting way to do it. Yeah. Do you, so I want to get into some of the specific episodes because I know there's amazing stories to tell. But but quite frankly, you've indicated that that you're up for talking about what some might describe as an epidemic of rural crime, uh, the, the prominence of rural crime, the the um, the frustration that we see with some rural landowners. And as a matter of fact, you know, political representatives, elected representatives in a lot of rural communities. Um, they're dissatisfied with police coverage. They're they're dissatisfied that if they put out a call to the RCMP that that they believe that their their property is 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 uh, you know uh, being compromised. In other words, they believe that their family may be at risk, and it's an active situation that sometimes it takes forty five or sixty or one hundred and twenty minutes for police to arrive. It's impacting people's perspectives on on firearms, and it's impacting people's perspectives. I mean, the the Colton Bushy story in Saskatchewan is a deadly serious example of how some of these situations uh, wind up. I would imagine you've heard as in producing this uh, project uh, story after story. How would you assess right now how rural residents, how, how farmers, so to speak, landowners are feeling in the communities that you visited? There's a few instances. I mean, I haven't, I didn't, I didn't direct all these episodes. So I wasn't in the field for all of them, but uh, one of the first episodes we shot for the first season was, um, uh, in Alberta and involved a rancher who had 50 of his cattle stolen. I mean, I'm, I'll give it away a bit. The episode's called Cattle Cops, and it's as much about this rancher who had these cattle stolen as it is about Alberta's livestock investigation detail, this like small two-person detail from the RCMP. It's, I mean, it's a very fascinating thing to to learn about how policing works in in livestock. And And I'll tell you, I mean, this guy did not feel safe being out there knowing that the the police were 20, 30 minutes away. And so I think a lot of, I mean, I'm 
this is just, I'm speaking anecdotally from what I've heard. I'm, I'm not an expert. Again, I live in the city where, you know, the, there's a police station like five minutes away. So I'm never going to experience something like that. But I think from, from what I've heard in those few instances is, yeah, is people are scared and they feel as though they need a right to protect themselves. And it's a very complicated issue. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not like the, I'm not the right person to kind of like weigh in on that, but, um, but I think their, their voices are being here and heard and the issue is coming up again and again. Yeah. And I think, I mean, whether it's anecdotally or otherwise, you're hearing these stories and you have to a certain degree, I mean, your finger on the pulse of it. And, and I think you have an informed opinion. So I think that, that a lot of this is, you know, if you talk to the appropriate people to talk to on an issue like this, um, you're going to get so many different perspectives on what an effective approach would look like. Right. I mean, some people might say, well, it should be a more, uh, you know, an Alberta based police force with with more robust expenditures and better representation at the local level. And then the counterpoint to that, there are many. It's way more expensive. It it, it de- decreases the efficiency of the RCMP. Uh, Albertans never asked for it. Um, you know, you, you can talk about firearms ownership. People are going to have many different opinions on that. I talk, you know, I talk to a lot, a lot of rural people. Yeah. I remember one guy, Jeff, I'll never forget this. In my previous radio show, I'm talking to a guy about firearm ownership. And he said to me something that will stick with me for the rest of my life. And he says, when you see a coyote literally attacking a calf as it's being born, you tell me I don't need a long gun. And I went, yeah, (laughs) yeah, this guy's walking in different boots than I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I uh, and again, I mean. Interestingly, I, I mean, I also in the past two years or produced a, a film about policing in Calgary and policing in Alberta and more in, in urban centers and looked at some of the issues um, that the Calgary Police Force specifically is facing with respect to oversight and excessive force and some of the failures of the oversight bodies in Alberta. Just, I mean, is actually an ex, a, a subject that I'm, I feel more qualified to speak on than I do on rural policing. I mean, one thing I'll say about farm crime is we have a pretty broad interpretation of, of what a, a farm crime can be for the show. And so there's certainly, there are some rural crime incidents, but there's also aquaculture incidents. And in the new season, we have some incidents involving invasive species like um, you know, the Asian giant hornet, the murder hornet in British Columbia. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to it. And I, and I, and I, you know, and I hear that farmer, like, yeah, you see a coyote attacking, uh, attacking one of your animals. Like what, what are you going to do in that, in that case? You're, um, you're going to want to intervene. So I, uh, Barry Fearnley is uh, is watching the show. Uh, he, he's a uh, a farmer. He's a, he uh, farms goats, as a matter of fact. And he says farm crime is almost as costly to us as the carbon tax. Barry doing a nice job of interweaving our subjects of conversation today. Daniel says in northern Alberta, it's 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 much more than vehicles and fuel theft. He says there is some rustling. Uh, says you know horses and cows are often shot just for target practice. He says now that's a crime. Right. How about this from Cam, who says my husband was was helping my dad with calving after a hip surgery and we had an attempted theft. Says my husband actually chased him off in his Toyota Supra. Great car, by the way, and says until they ran him into the ditch. No cell service. Middle of winter. She says, luckily, it's funny. We can laugh about it now. But I mean, it just it just goes to show that, you know, there's uh, you know, Blaine says there's a big misunderstanding about the root problems uh, with rural policing and rural crime. He says very few people actually understand it's a problem from provincial funding and support, not from the federal government. Um, yeah, we get some really interesting comments here on, on how people might address this, how people might might solve this. Have you picked up on a common theme 
from the people that you talk about? I mean, maybe aside from the fact that they're frustrating or they've been impacted by what would qualify as farm crime for the series. Has there been a common message? I, I mean, I, I think the the message is, is, a, is like it's one of like frustration. Um a lot of these agricultural products that are that are stolen are, I mean, might be really hard to trace. Um, and you know, when we talk about rural crime, it's hard to police both from a, I mean, from a law enforcement is is not nearby. And I mean, we're not we're not we're not in an urban place where there's cameras everywhere. So investigating these crimes is is difficult um, in rural areas, certainly, and um, certainly on farms. And I, you know. Again, we, we looked at incidents where stolen stolen cattle. I mean, if the, there's a story in the in the new season of Farm Crime about three paint horses that were stolen. The horses weren't branded, and so um, how is a lot? How is a livestock investigator? Someone going to be able to track those animals down if they're not if they're not branded? Thankfully, they paint horses, so they're branded just by the nature of their their colorings. But um, Jeff, that was a, that was the story. It, wasn't that the story? They they were stolen from a Nakota elder, correct? That's correct. The paint yes. were they? Was there like a was there a uh, cultural significance to that, or was can you take us into that story? That sounded like a really interesting one. Yeah, I mean, it, it took place in the Morley First Nation. Um, this was last spring. Uh, Nakota elder, um, you know, woke up one morning and noticed that three of his horses were missing. I mean, it's not unusual for the horses to wander off from time to time, but he had a feeling that this uh, this was a little bit different and. Um, and I think his his instincts were, were backed up in, in other ways as well. And um, he started talking about it with his daughter, who also had a very strong relationship with the horses. And I mean, both of them had spent their entire lives around these these around paint horses on the Stony Nakota First Nation. And so, I mean, when it, when his daughter saw how heartbroken he was about these horses, um, you know, at this point, just having gone missing, she said, you know what, I'm going to try and figure this out. I'm going to try and find them. And she did everything she could to try and find these horses. I mean, reaching out to someone from LIS, uh, reaching out to a meatpacking plant, um, talking to people that uh, that are involved in sort of the un- informal like horse trading network, which is very fascinating to learn about. Uh, and then, of course, also um, posting on social media, which is, I guess, if you want to touch on another common theme, uh, social media has also been a uh, another big thing that's uh, that I've seen in some of the farm crimes in terms of people trying to find their you know missing product or missing animal um, posts on Facebook or Instagram or wherever it is, um, and also a lot of people posting stolen goods on Kijiji. We've had yeah. a couple uh, incidents where things have been uh, posted on Kijiji. The cattle cops episode from the first episode for the first season uh, involved the the perpetrator like trying to post these cattle on Kijiji and. I mean, it's not the smartest thing to do, like when you're trying to like, you know, cover your tracks and um, and get rid of some stolen property. But um, yeah, I mean, where, same time, I guess. although how else do you I mean, you you need I am I, I'll just be honest. I, I'm so ignorant about this type of stuff. It's why I think your series is great. It's why I love conversations like this. It's why I'm keeping a keen eye on our live chat because our rural friends and our audience members are speaking right now in real time, giving their stories. And Jeff, I'll infuse some of those into our conversation I, I hope you don't have anywhere to go is your, is your morning fairly flexible because we kind of roll however we like here on the show i can i can no, let, it's good okay uh, i mean i'm not talking three hours but um i just this is really fascinating and and people are coming alive and telling their stories but i i would be fascinated to see, i mean you, you talk about the cattle cops or you talk about the what did you call them the, the rcmp's livestock investigation bureau you said there's two of them um, are they like totally overworked? Is that the sense you get? Is, th- is this a thing? Like, is there a whole, do I just not even understand there's a whole black market? How do you rustle 
Did you say 50 cattle? 50? What? So, I mean, I'll, I'll take you through it. I mean, this happened a couple of years ago um, and the, the rancher and his wife had gone on vacation and their ranch hand, uh, I mean, was living in, uh, living in like a, a small house on the property. He had, a, he had a, uh, I think, five kids. He was there with his wife. This is, I mean, these are all, here's another theme. These are all heartbreaking stories. There's, there's victims at the heart of all these stories and um, people that are being taken advantage of. And in this case, uh, you know, the ranch hand saw an opportunity and um, put 50 head of cattle up on Kijiji and uh, found buyers. Uh, He took uh, the rancher's uh, trailer and transported the animals. And by the time the rancher came back, him and his family were gone. And the rancher had no idea what to do. So we called up his local RCMB detachment thinking, okay, I'm going to report this to the police. Um, as is t- the typical response, often um, those, uh, those detachments are overwhelmed. They don't have a lot of resources to devote to agricultural crime. That's just, that just it is what it is. And uh, thankfully, someone passed on the phone number to uh, the RCMP livestock investigator. And at this point, I think there was only one. I think there are now two in the province. Mm. Uh, I think there's one in BC, and I think they were trying to get one in Saskatchewan as well. And uh, this this investigator picked up the case, and he he, you know, he drove out you know a couple hours to to meet with the rancher, and started looking into it. Started looking into phone records. Um, uh, ultimately, found the ad on Kijiji. Um, through uh cell i think i mean this is also quite fascinating is kind of the combination of i think the episode talks about solving the crime with old western know-how and then modern um crime solving um technology so i think he ended up using uh cell phone tower pings to track down the location of the perpetrator the guy who stole the cattle and was able to go up there and and arrest him um but yeah i mean I don't know. Like, so the, this last summer when we were, you know, trying to get back into production, I, I phoned up uh, the livestock investigator. And I mean, thankfully we're into the second season now. So we have a couple of relationships and, and, and I called her up and I said, Hey, have you been working on anything recently? And she told me about two cases, a, a big, big bust in Saskatchewan, which is still going through the courts. So it was, was kind of like not the right, right fit for us. And then also this story that the three paint horses being stolen and, um, and her involvement in that case and trying to, find the horses and bring them back. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's really, I mean, again, for me and from my perspective, um, growing up around the city, it's fascinating to hear about this livestock investigation detail and the work that they do and the type of, um, techniques that they use to, to solve these crimes. It's, it's actually, so, I mean, to, to everyone who's listening, like know that they're out there and yeah. they're there to, to serve you, you know? Yeah. And also heads up, if you see a great price on 50 cattle in Kijiji, maybe be, maybe, you know, buyer beware, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but but hey, in all seriousness, I mean, I don't know what I don't know what sort of the cost of beef is out right now or something. But am I safe to assume that if we say, you know, they're approximately, let me say roughly worth between two and three grand a pop. Maybe I'm pricing it over. Maybe I'm under. I'm not sure. I'm not a cattle rancher. But you're talking about there a theft of between one hundred and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, assuming that they didn't uh, steal genetic treasures as well, which could triple that cost. Uh, I mean, I have no idea what yeah, the price I, is. Like, but, I have yeah, no idea. With but, respect to the genetic treasures, I mean, we we tried really hard to put together a bull semen case, and um, 
we're not able to. Just then another fascinating thing to hear to, to learn about is is the value in, in some of these, you know, as you say, genetic oh, treasures. Yeah. Let's, let's let's go into the bull semen story. And I, I I'm gonna I, there's gonna be like I've I've been trying not to be immature like a nine year old all show today with my hot takes, but but so I'll I'll be I'll avoid all of the puns. But in all seriousness, if you have a, a what do you call them, like a donor bull or a stud or whatever they call them, I'm a city slicker, pardon me. I mean, they, they could be worth like probably a million dollars, right? I mean, this is a huge deal. I, I mean, potentially. I know there were, so there's been some big thefts in the States. There was one in California and one in Minnesota. Um, there's actually, I mean, there's a company that's trying to uh, do a, a version of the farm crime show in the States right now, and they're developing it. Um but the ones in Canada, I think there was one in Manitoba that was like 20 years ago. So it wasn't um, it did not you know, end up being a, a viable story for the show. OK, so to, to, so to give you an idea, I'm just I'm just uh, referencing news yeah. out of Australia. Um, you know, here's a story for uh, this is from May of 2019. So it's a bit dated, but uh, the record was broken at a sale. Uh, bull semen at auction uh, Wagyu cattle so obviously Like a, a pretty high profile uh, Beef uh, breed there But but $67,000 Not for the bull for the Semen so you know I mean that gives some perspective on the value Here that we're talking about And I mean that's it uh, Here's here's another theme like all these Crimes are motivated by um, by money. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. And some of these, uh, in some of these, uh, instances, like, you know, the first season we did a story about, I guess, what is, you know, become known as like the biggest bee heist in Canadian history, this four generation, uh, independent apiary in Quebec had 5 million of their bees stolen valued at $200,000. And they're one of the biggest like independent apiaries in, in Canada. So I, I Heartbreaking story, but a, a tremendous amount of money uh, that's actually involved. No um, kidding, and, and I mean, you know, it's it's no one. I mean, so you've got the 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 um, the you know the the fiscal loss, the loss to your bottom line. Uh, there's the, the the disheartening loss if you're losing genetics or anything like that, and then there's the sense of people not feeling safe. Right. Like Miles uh, says right now, crime reduction is, is a multifaceted thing. We can't just pop down more police everywhere, ignore root causes of why people are getting desperate and resorting to this crime. Uh, which is a great point. Ytrium says we've had vehicles stolen. We've had our farm equipment broken into. My grandma's place was broken into three times. Says police response times are a huge issue, and there's really no good way around that with such a large area to cover. I mean, that's just a reality. Rural uh, rural members of our audience are going to say, well, I mean, they'll acknowledge that when you move out there. You know, I've, I've always thought one of the things that would always be in the back of my mind with loved ones, this is not really profound, Jeff, but but with loved ones that live so far away from services, including police, but also hospital, you know, rural people that live in rural areas acknowledge that certain things, if you, if you have a, a devastating health incident, a stroke or a heart attack, I mean, that's another thing. You're, you're out there on your own to a certain degree, right? And it, and it probably impacts your mindset in a certain way of how you protect yourself, how you protect your family. And I'm not just talking physically and I'm not just saying from crime. But it wouldn't. It, it would. You're, you're talking to people here. You're interviewing people. You're featuring people as part of your doc that that have to be wired a little bit differently. Differently. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and again, the the show comes at it from a a real perspective of respect and curiosity because yeah. I mean, for the most part, myself and the other directors that have been involved in this project. Um, 
not all of us have had that lived experience. And so, um, the, you know, one of the, the challenges and I think opportunities with the show is in, in trying to like translate and bring those stories to an urban audience and help people who have those, who have those same questions and that same curiosity, um, understand the, and understand these, um, these experiences a little bit better. Well, you do. But I think, you know, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say another thing you touched on, um, you know, there's the financial side of it too, but there's also just the the sense of security and, um, you know, being a, a victim of one of these crimes. And I think one of the things that really um, uh, emerged in the first season we were working on this show is that, you know, it didn't necessarily, in terms of a storytelling perspective, it didn't necessarily matter what the value of the crime was. Um, the show is much more about, um, you know, sharing the experiences of these victims. And, you know, no matter whether it's, you know, $10,000 or $100,000 that's been stolen from you, you've still been a victim of crime. You've been validated, uh, sorry, you've been, you've been victimized in some way. And so the stakes, you know, no matter what are going to be high when you're involved in something like that. And so from a, a, a storytelling perspective, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, home invasion or a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars. Um, there's a victim there and, you know, and to be able to tell their story and validate their story is, is, is become a big part of what this show is about. Yeah. And getting those stories out there. Our live chat is talking about the, the great Pyrenees breed. Uh, I was talking to a farmer <laughs> off air, off the show about this a while ago. And, and he was telling me about how great Pyrenees are. We, we were talking specifically about protection from coyotes. Um, and he was talking to me about how the great Pyrenees are amazing. He's, he says to me, he goes, there are a few breeds, that can that can protect that can defend themselves against a coyote attack there are a few breeds he said for sure he said but great he said great pyrenees love killing them and i went oh okay like they're on another level he says but these aren't you don't raise them he had some experience and he and he says you don't raise them like you would they're not your family dog they're not in the house you know called lucky and you're scratching them behind their ears and then they run out to fight the coyotes they they're from puppies they're put in with the cattle and they're raised with the cattle and they're they're they are farm animals. They're working dogs with the cattle. And that's how they protect them. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, just steps that people take. Can we get into some of your episodes? Like, I'm curious to know when I when I think of farm crime, I don't think of murder hornets, so to speak. But how did this story come about? This is a fascinating one. Oh, it's nuts. I mean, uh, last spring, I mean, everyone was at home. We were all terrified about what was going on with the pandemic. And can you, can people hear the clip right now? Yeah, no, we're not. No, you know why? Actually, Jeff, to tell you the truth is because it it puts us more susceptible to the algorithm actually suspending our account for copyright violation. But we'll share that you have shared this with us and we're running this with your permission. By all means, by all means. Um, and, and so anyway, this story about murder hornets came out. Um, I don't know if it was the New York Times that first reported on it. I mean, this was last May and everyone was terrified about what was going on in the world. And here is another threat. And I started to read more about this story and realized that, you know, nine months earlier, um, there was a group of four beekeepers in Nanaimo that uh, had discovered uh, an Asian giant hornet nest. It was the first discovery in North America. And uh, there was an alert that was put out from the chief apiarist in British Columbia. And uh, a local expert said, hey, listen, if we don't take out this nest right away, 
these uh, new queens are going to emerge. The bees are going to, uh, the hornets are going to propagate and they're going to spread throughout the region. It's going to be a disaster. Now, Asian giant hornets are a, a highly invasive species. They hadn't previously been in North America before. They're known to like decimate honeybee populations. And I think everyone is kind of familiar with a lot of the threats that honeybees face. And so it became this urgent, urgent thing that needed to be dealt with. And so when I heard about this experience of these beekeepers and this story that had taken place, you know, nine months before the murder hornet phenomenon blew up, it just seemed like a, a, an, an amazing story to be able to tell through the show. And, and also kind of an opportunity to do a different kind of farm crime. So the victim in this case, of course, are the, the, the local beekeepers, but the real victim is the honeybees and the honeybee population and the perpetrator is this invasive species. So it gave us kind of a different way of like orienting, orienting around a, a farm crime story. Yeah. Very and it's, I mean, it, it unfolds like a, a it unfolds like a thriller in some ways. It's really quite fascinating. The world of uh, again, I'm uh, oftentimes in conversations with guests. I offer the least profound, uh, um, you know, elements of the conversation. <laughs> but the world of bees and beekeeping is so fascinating. Hey, like, I mean, I know you were talking about earlier, you talked to those that had the apiary as well. And I mean, you've, you've, you've obviously had some exposure to this world, but, but the, the dynamics of the bee population and how to a certain degree, some beekeepers, their hearts are in their throats a little bit through the winter to see which hives survive into the spring and, and the way that swarms are captured and bought and sold and Queens introduced or like, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. There's actually, I think CBC has another documentary that takes you through the, a year in the life of a, of a bee, uh, of a simple like drone and um, through, through from the perspective of the bee. It's quite, quite fascinating, actually. Yeah. But I think, you know, for people that are, you know, that put so much of themselves and I mean, here's another theme. They put so much of themselves into their work and there's a lot of hobby beekeepers out there as well. But to learn about yet another threat uh, against the honeybee. And, and I think, I mean, the reason why the Asian giant hornet got this nickname is because of how they uh, attack the honeybee. Like they, they essentially, like they bite off their heads and, and take the food back to feed their young. So there's, I mean, sure, it's done in a, a murderous way. And so that's how they got the nickname and how the nickname stuck. But I mean, it's all, it's, I mean, this is, this is David Attenborough. This is the natural world, you know, like yeah. it's fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, no kidding. Um, you talk about, I mean, you get into stolen lobsters. Uh, you talk about obviously stolen horses. What about this? There's, there was like a, if I understand correctly, a multi-million dollar trafficking ring that was broken up at a baby eel fishery. This isn't your yeah. every, this isn't your boring everyday six o'clock news story. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I'd question the, the listeners. <laughs> it's not a, a clip from the show. No, uh, I don't I'd know. What was, the it, was that Billy Idol or who? I, I was looking away off camera. I think that was actually from uh, Disruptor Conductor. Oh, Disruptor yeah, Conductor. That was still in my Q stack. Okay. That yeah. was another. Um, Sorry about uh, that. No, don't apologize. It gives me an opportunity to remind everybody that our interview with Daniel Bartholomew Poyser, who's uh, uh, a, a, a wonderful, he's a childhood friend of mine, um, and he's one of Canada's only. Uh, black gay out orchestra conductors and he's just an amazing human being um, Jeff he was actually featured um, disruptor conductor was, is a CBC gem doc and he joined us a little while ago and just another um, example of great storytelling but these baby eels what's what's the deal 
I mean, here's another story. When I mean, we do a lot of research for the show, and I had come across an investigative piece by a journalist named Richard Cuthbertson out of Halifax um, about a a trafficking bust in the baby eel fishery. And so, I mean, what is the baby eel fishery? I'd never heard of it before. I, I suspect that most Canadians have not heard of the baby eel fishery before. It's very small. There are nine commercial license holders in the Maritimes. The baby eel or elver or the American eel really is a is also a threatened species, uh, threatened by poachers, threatened by overfishing. I mean, I think there are also some in- environmental concerns. But uh, here was this story uh, about someone who was trying to sell hundreds of kilograms of baby eels. And so, I mean, even to kind of understand how do you get up to a million dollars with the baby eels? So uh, threatened species, there is high demand for eel meat in Asia, but here's the thing, eels cannot be bred in captivity. And so uh, to fuel the Asian market, they need to buy eels or uh, when they are babies or they're elvers and they're caught in, in Canada and along the East coast of the United States and shipped over and then raised in, in fish farms. And so demand for them is very high. It's been very high in Europe as well. And so high that it led to the closure of the fishery there. They're now endangered in Europe. And so the price of, as of a couple of years ago, the price of baby eels could be as high as $4,500 a kilogram. This is an insane amount of money. And so naturally um, people that know where to fish them and know how to fish them um, are, are poaching and they're stealing um, baby eels because there's so much money involved. And so, this is the story of a of a poacher that had a, a couple hundred kilograms of baby eels, and I mean you can quickly do the math and figure out how much how much that is worth. Um, who tried to sell sell them on the black market, and I, I won't go too deep into it, but you know when you try to sell them on the black market, there's not many places you can take them outside of the commercial fishers, the people that have a distribution uh, channel anyway. And so when they found out this guy was trying to sell them naturally they they ratted him out because the fishery needs to be protected it's so fragile and to catch this poacher the department of fisheries and oceans launched a sting operation and went undercover and it all unfolds at a gas station on the border of nova scotia and new brunswick and i'll leave it there great hook that was that was excellent I was just waiting to hear how it all goes down. But of course, we have to watch Farm Crime Season 2 on CBC Gem. I was just actually, to be honest, I'll, I'll, I'll admit my mind was wandering the tiniest little bit as you were describing it. And I was thinking how this is such a great movie plot, but carried out by animated like ocean. Dwelling. Like I'm thinking like what's that? Finding Nemo, like that style of movie, but about the theft of baby eels. And I just think that that, you know, I don't know. This is the way my mind works sometimes, Jeff. Mm. <laughs> I know it's not I mean, your, it's I mean, not your I wheelhouse. Mean, perhaps, perhaps. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe well, I'll, I might steal the story from you and produce the film and make and go on to make hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, how about that? Maybe that's what will happen. Well, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love I love what you're doing because the series is unpredictable. Like you touch on the issues that are like these are important. It's not a joke. It's I mean, the, the, the health of the fisheries and the industry and the, like that's not a joke, but it's such yeah. an intriguing story that if you say farm crime and people are picturing quads getting stolen or gas getting stolen, like that's not what this is. Uh, you, you must yeah. learn something every day at your job. We endeavor to do that here. I bet you do. 
I mean, that's it. It's been a, an amazing project to work on, you know, for each, each story that has actually gone into production yeah. and film, there's been 20 other ones that we've tossed out. And I mean, again, at the heart of it, there's, there's, these are like victim stories and sure. I, I, I just told you about the most, you know, exciting and enticing detail that baby eel story. Well, there's another side of it that tells you the experience of one of those commercial uh, license holders, the uh, Wagoba first nation on Cape Breton who have a right to, uh, harvest baby eels. And if this, uh, if poaching continues to go on and the species is, it continues to be threatened or becomes endangered, then the fishery will be shut down. And something actually really fascinating happened. I mean, I'd say fascinating, but really it, it's heartbreaking and troubling. Uh, last year, the baby eel fishery was shut down um, quite prematurely because of conflict between licensed fishers and non-licensed fishers. And that is how threatened this industry is. So yes, this trafficking um and sting operation is going on but behind all of this you know there are people whose livelihoods are at stake and if the fishery gets shut down and if hundreds of kilograms are taken out of the river um that can't be fished legally like there's a lot of people that are that are going to be hurt by it and so yeah. there's always this other side to it and i think you know when you talk about my, my job and what i get out of like learning about all these stories that was one of the most surprising things when we started this project was learning about um, the stakes involved to people, to, to people who are victims of these crimes. And like, this really is their livelihood. And, um, and I mean, that can't be overstated, you know, yeah. the health of the economy, uh, the health of people, the health of the environment, the health of the other species. I mean, you, you hit it all. Congratulations on season two of farm crime. People can find it now. It's out on CBC gem. And of course you can learn more uh, by following Jeff on Twitter and also check out uh, big cedar uh, right? Jeff big cedar That's right. Yeah. I mean, actually, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll plug another project that we just yeah. released last year with our partners, lost time media. Um, a um a film about the calgary police service called above the law that's available on cbc and there's a, a feature version that's called no visible trauma and it looks at a couple incidents of uh excessive force and uh some of the failures of the respective oversight bodies in alberta uh to hold those officers uh, accountable so i mean we have this other kind of more eccentric project about uh, true crime and then uh, another real really important and, and critical issue that, uh, that is facing albertans right now as well so I, I encourage people to check that out as well on cbc uh, above the law and doing uh such important work you know you and your team these stories wouldn't get told uh if people like you weren't taking them on jeff congratulations on season two of farm crime and, and thanks for hanging out with us into overtime this was a lot of fun learned a lot today that's great. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. That's Jeff Morrison. He's a producer of Farm Crime Season 2. Uh, he's joining us. Uh, he's uh, with the Big Cedar Films, which is doing some really cool stuff. I, I saw I was trying to keep an eye on the live chat through this, and there was a lot going on. But, Sam, I know that you monitor it as as uh, as part of your duties. And what was this thing? What, what's everybody talking about Dairy Queen? Why are people talking about Dairy Queen on the live chat? Were you able to understand what was going on there? Oh, uh, people are uh, think that we need to throw a little bit more love towards the dairy-free dilly bars. Oh, the dairy-free dilly? Uh, yeah. We've not talked about them we've enough? We've not talked about them. For, well, we haven't talked about them for a while. What prompted you know? that? I, I don't know what prompted that, but that's been a buzz on that's been a buzz on the on the old chatterbox for the last couple of days. All right. Well, hey, I mean, there's no time like the present uh, to remind you that our friends at Dairy Queen do have dairy free dilly bars. I've tried them. They're excellent. 
They're I, I can put my stamp of approval on them as well. You have They're, also had. Yeah. And because I wanted to have an educated, informed sample, I, I had a dairy-free one, and then I had a, a dairy one. You just did them back-to-back. Back-to-back, Back-to-back. With, with no yeah. break in between, aside from removing the packaging. That was it. Back-to-back, crushed them. And I could have crushed two more, probably, and then maybe two more after that if the boys were cheering me on. You can find your dairy-free dilly bars at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They're such valued partners of ours. And uh, I don't know. I can't, I can't say it. I can't. Well, okay. Well, mm, I'm talking to Mark and Michael next week. It's not up for me to announce. But we're talking about maybe some sort of a Real Talk discount. I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to announce it. It's not ready to be announced. We've not hammered out the details. I do not have the green light, except I can confirm that we are talking about it. So if you're going to be going through their drive throughs you let them know. You let them know who sent you. The same goes with the team at Friesen Brothers. I hear from some... I got. I was walking on the sidewalk yesterday. I'm going to tell you a sidewalk story in just a moment that's going to... It's going to move you. I guarantee it. This girl stops me on the sidewalk. She can see, I guess, the eyes. I was wearing my mask. She could see... And she says, I just went to Friesen Brothers for the first time. And I went, and? And she went, uh-huh. And then she just kept walking. And I went, okay. I was like, thanks for thanks for watching Real Talk. Can I start I lobbying even, for one to be built near my house? Well, you can join the lobby. Okay. Because we're hearing from, you know, probably you want yours in, 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 in well, your part of town. we live in the same neighborhood. We got people that in, in Calgary are wanting Friesen Brothers, people from out of province. You know, we've got we've got viewers and listeners in Saskatchewan and, and uh, British Columbia that are going, what the hell? Like, where's our Friesen Brothers? The more that we talk about it. Maybe today I'll focus real quick on the honey. Because we talked about all the bee thefts and the murder hornets and all that cool stuff. If you check out Friesen Brothers' new store in South Edmonton, their 15th Alberta store, check out their Alberta honey display. It will blow your mind. They're going to have bees on their roof starting this summer at the grocery store. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also wanted to remind you that the team at Westworld Computers keeps our studio powered up and they can do the same for you at home or in the office if you're working away from home or hey, if you're getting set to ramp up your home office, why not talk to them? Daryl and his team have been in business independently for more than 40 years, Daryl's family has. And they've got the new lineup plus the gently pre-owned with full warranty. You make sure you let them know you heard about them on Real Talk. Wanted to touch on something quickly, so we've not had a chance to, to review it in robust fashion. The announcement was made by conservative leader Aaron O'Toole while we've been doing the show live. Um, so I'm going to rely on some reporting uh, by David Cochran, Salima Shivji and Aaron Wary with CBC News. Um, they write that the conservatives climate plan would replace the liberal carbon tax with a lower levy of their own. So reads the report filed just a short time ago after years of criticizing the liberal carbon tax. The Conservative Party is proposing a climate plan that also puts a price on carbon for consumers, according to a copy of the party's climate plan uh, obtained by CBC News. Uh, Instead of the liberal carbon tax and rebate system, Aaron O'Toole is proposing a charge, uh, a levy. uh, You know, make sure you remind everybody, all the conservatives that have said it's not it's not a levy, it's a tax. All right. Well, if he's going to say levy, you make sure you remind him it's still a tax on fuel. Do I care? I don't give a shit about whether it's a levy or a tax. It's something that people are paying. It's semantics. Jason, this is a reference to a radio thing. Jason Kenny and I got into it once. He says, you refuse to call it a tax. I said, oh, my God, they're going to charge a levy on fuel purchases and use the money to fund personalized. That's the most Kenny thing you can do is hone in on shit like that. Uh, They're going to use the money to fund personalized savings account, which Canadians can use for environmentally friendly purchases. Notes the plan. We recognize the most efficient way to reduce our emissions is to use pricing mechanisms pretty interesting stuff so we'll get into this in more robust fashion tomorrow and we're going to be talking dollars and cents tomorrow and then leading up to monday's budget and we'll have you covered 
Uh, Andrew Coyne, this is an interesting tweet from him. He says, uh, after years of urging the conservatives to adopt a carbon tax, I feel disinclined to mock them for having now done so. We can get into the detailed merits and, and demerits of the proposed of the proposal later, but this is a gutsy move by O'Toole. So that's a take from Andrew Coyne. Because a lot of people, Sam, what I have seen, uh, again, anecdotally on social media right now is people saying, oh, for years, Aaron O'Toole has been fighting against the carbon tax. Now he's implementing one. I think, quite frankly, not to oversimplify, but the conservatives know that they have to be perceived as having a viable plan or people just aren't going to think about voting. They won't even consider it. But the conservatives hate the carbon tax because they didn't come up with it, right? Like, there's other places where conservative governments have backed carbon prices, including Alberta, including Alberta, including yeah, the OG carbon levy was in Alberta, yeah. right? And, and so, like, it's an economic-driven force that is actually a very conservative-friendly principle. The other thing, and and I'm just going to come out right here and saying it. I don't cringe at the word tax. It's a tax. It's great. We pay taxes. We live in a civilized society. Give me a tax to pay. Stop dressing it up with light, with other languages. It's a tax. It's fine to call it that. Uh, Trevor Boudreaux uh, is responding to that that uh, Twitter exchange that I had earlier with Corey Morgan that I talked about, where, where I basically asked him if you could support a party that could achieve government with a climate policy that would be saleable to the general public. In other words, one that people would buy into or at least could consider buying into. Or if you could support a party that would forever be in opposition based on a principled stand against something like a carbon tax, what would be your choice? And, and Corey said his choice would be to remain principled. And he pointed to the work that Preston Manning did in opposition with the Reform Party. Uh, Trevor Boudreaux is watching and, and, and he chimes in. He says, I'd be curious what climate policy is saleable to the general public. You know, Stephen Harper was attacked for his climate targets, which were initially adopted by the Trudeau liberals. Trudeau is now promising a 30 percent reduction from 2005 levels. Net zero by 2050, says Trevor, which is basically impossible. The, that's his matter of opinion. We can get into that debate. But but when Trevor, he's on to something when he says, I'd be curious what climate policy is saleable to the general public. So should be political parties. <laughs> they should be talking to members of the general public. They should be talking to experts. Economists, energy science uh, scientists, uh, market experts with regards to oil and gas and trends, global commentators, investors, people related to industry, people related to uh, environmental science. You need to, and pollsters and, and people that are skilled with public messaging. I mean, you have to build a machine that allows you to understand what is saleable to the general public and what is impactful. In other words, who will endorse your climate plan? as being meaningful and then sell it as such. And you're probably going to say, oh, it's such a tacky word. You got to sell it. But that is what campaigning is. Right. And that's how if the conservatives want to form government, this is how they're going to have to hit this up. I wanted to uh, get a couple of mentions in before I tell a story. And this is something that happened to me uh, yesterday and it involves you real talkers. And um, and I want to end the show on that. Because it's going to launch you into the rest of your day uh, with, I think, uh, a second of sober thought and then pure positivity. Um, but first, let me remind you that tomorrow uh, we'll be ending our show in a bit of a different fashion. It'll feel good. We'll blow off a little steam. I can't believe it's Friday already tomorrow. We've got a great roundtable coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking about curriculum, education, other issues and matters and things that affect you and your family. Um, 
And we'll wrap up with trash talk, which is us reading your email. Send in to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This doesn't have to be about politics. It can be anything. Uh, the other week, somebody wrote in that how nobody knows how to use traffic circles or somebody wrote in about plastic packaging. Uh, some, you know, what, have, what have been some of the other funny ones? We get some great ones. Um, pie versus cake. That was pie an versus, early one. That one, pie versus cake. Yeah, I was surprised because that, to me, was one of the more divisive conversations we've had mm, on yeah. the show. Well, and I mean, like raisins have come up. A Ra- I don't even, oh, well, let's not. Yeah, I, mean, I know. You know, I mean, I thought we've settled. I thought the science was settled on raisins. I think we voted overwhelmingly yes to raisins. Now people are just going to lose their minds. Um, trash talk talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send in your gripes. We still have some room to review before we nail down who's going to be included in tomorrow's segment. Of course, this is presented by the team at Local Waste, who for more than 25 years have been providing local waste services for their partners, businesses, big and small. They love talking trash and they love fighting for your business. In other words, give them a shout. Ask for Chris, Mikel, or Lauren. You'll find all their contact information at localwaste.ca or under the sponsors tab on our website. You tell them what you're paying your current provider. You tell them what the landscape looks like with regards to your bottom line, and they would love to earn your business. That's what they're all about. You can find out more at localwaste.ca. Also, a big shout out to the team at Clean Air Club. Your chance to save money and breathe easy exists right now at cleanairclub.ca. You tell them what size you need your furnace filter to be. Next thing you know, sometimes the next day, they're dropped off on your front porch so you pay less than you would in store you stay on schedule making sure that all that nasty stuff is filtered out of the air going through your vents and of course you feel good as well supporting a partner that supports this show at cleanairclub.ca we told you yesterday about um emily cave and her instagram post Uh, she lost her son colby tragically uh, a sudden medical event and colby ultimately uh, on the anniversary of his passing was was laid to rest in a, in a very meaningful and a very emotional service and emily shortly after posted on instagram that she was taking a step back that she was walking away from social media for a while she talked about some of the bullying that she's been encountering and the impact it's having on her mental health it's broken her or at least come close to she's got this kind of power to her spirit and our conversation prompted an email Again, talk at ryanjesperson.com, an email from Tracy. And Tracy said, Ryan, I was, I was just listening to you discuss Emily Cave. And I wondered if perhaps you could ask real talkers to support the program that has been renamed in Colby's honor. They're calling it Colby's Kids. And it's a community program with an emphasis on mental health initiatives. Um, Sam, we can show those that are watching on YouTube right now. If you just go to NHL.com slash Oilers slash community, you'll be able to find it. Or, of course, you can reach out to us. We'll be happy to send you the link. So Colby's Kids is a community program with an emphasis on mental health initiatives. Uh, Writes Tracy. Emily has said that this is going to be her focus. And it's going to be how she'll keep Colby's memory alive in the community. And I just thought that was absolutely wonderful. I know a lot of you wrote in yesterday after the fact to say, wow, like, you know, her experience. I know I saw that that, that several of you reached out and left comments on her Instagram at m.cave. We weren't sure if she was going to be checking them because, you know, she's walking away uh, for a while and taking a break that she needs. And a lot of you wrote into the show as well and sent us emails. Some of you saying this isn't to be read on the air. You just want you just need to get something off your chest. Uh, you, some of you dug into the idea of the, the, the toxicity of social media. Some of you talked about what it must be like to live and grieve in the public eye. We had a really public, uh, powerful message about grieving in the public eye. So I reflected on those 
and we finished the work on producing today's show and we pushed out our clips, you know, so you can see maybe the episodes you've missed and and I had a haircut. And so I go downtown, downtown Edmonton, beautiful day, um, parked a ways away and I was walking. I was walking on the sidewalk because beautiful day, sun's hitting my face and I get my haircut. I step back out onto the sidewalk and uh, this girl's walking towards me and she's wearing her mask too. Um, she had a hat kind of pulled down over her eyes and she's walking. I just thought we were going to walk past each other on the sidewalk, but she walks up to me. You know, when somebody like walks up to you with intent, she says, Ryan, I said, Hey. She says, thanks. And I went, for what? She goes, I'm Emily. And it kind of took me a second. And then all of a sudden I go, and we're standing literally in the shadow of Roger's place. We're standing in the shadow of the NHL arena where Colby Cave, up until this devastating medical incident and all and his untimely passing starred for the Edmonton Oilers and here is Emily Cave a serendipitous kind of a happy accident walking down the sidewalk the same time I am and I just had this like I just felt emotion like surge through my body and in any other time you might offer a hug or I didn't know what was a pro but it's just one of those you know the pandemic so weird the pandemic is but that you could feel like you could feel the energy coming from Emily and we actually had a wonderful conversation and I'm going to keep most of it private because she was an absolutely open book but I can tell you how much your messages of support to her meant to her because she told me from her own mouth she told me that so many people reached out to her and said, did you see the thing on Real Talk? And, and she told me what it's been like to hear from you, the audience members, and to fill her cup and to restore her spirit and to continue to do that or to make a commitment, as some of you said to her, to continue to do that, to be there for her in ways that you'll figure out, despite the fact that you don't even know her personally. And I guess I just wanted to thank you. Number one, I wanted to draw your attention to the Colby Cave Memorial Fund and to Colby's kids, this mental health initiative, this program through the Edmonton Oilers and the Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation. If you want to find a tangible, meaningful way to do something or to express your grief or to express your encouragement, that's one way to do it. And keep, I'm going to say, I don't know when she's going to check her Instagram again, but keep leaving messages. It's M like E-M dot cave. That's her account. Let her know you care about her. Let her know you heard about the story on Real Talk or not. doesn't matter to me. And maybe continue to reach out to other people who are walking through early steps and stages of grief. We don't ever have the words for them. I think of our uh, conversation with the White family, with Rob White's um, wife and kids, with, with Roberta who joined us and his son Strider and Alliance and Chris Barrett, his best buddy. That was earlier this week. Rob White, you remember, slipped through and went under the ice in the North Saskatchewan River, saving a dog. He saved the dog. We don't know how to have these conversations. We can't relate to these people, really. We can imagine, we can try to walk a mile in their shoes, but ultimately we can't. But as a community, we come here and we gather and we find strength and encouragement in these gatherings. And then also we can, we can extrapolate that and we can push that out. We can widen our circle and we can remind people that they're loved and cared for and valued and appreciated. So I wanted to thank every one of you that left a message for her yesterday. It resonated with her big time. And I'll never forget that interaction on that sidewalk just outside Roger's place. That was yesterday in real life.
Love you guys. We'll talk to you tomorrow. It's going to be a great roundtable coming up. We're endeavoring to speak with at least three of the trustees or chairs of the school boards that have said, we ain't implementing this curriculum draft. There's a long list closing in on 30. Plus, other news of the day as we lead up to Monday's budget. We've got you covered here on Real Talk. Have an amazing Thursday, and we'll talk to you soon. The gun on-